This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from AllComic.com, episode 152. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramiyasha. And I think on this episode, we're finally getting around to talking about some new manga. The first new batch of new Shonen Jump series of the year. And it's quite the batch because... We've got I Tell C, Nine Dragons Ball Parade, we got Witch Wash, and we got The Elusive Samurai. It's a very eclectic collection of new series, half of whom are by returning creators that we both love. And we had a really interesting conversation about them because they're all quite interesting series. Yeah, spoiler alert, um, none of these are bad. Not at all. This is one of the strongest batches of new Shonen Jump series in quite a while. They all have something interesting and unique to offer. But before we even get into the simulpods, we really need to catch up on recent news because there was a lot of news out of February, partly in thanks to Seven Seas doing a big stunt event of having a new license announced every day. <laughs> and because there was such a voluminous amount of new licenses, we will not be able to cover them all. Instead, we are going to be doing our thing where we picked a select few to talk about. I know for my end, I only picked about a week's worth of Seven Seas series <laughs> out of that month. But yeah, I mean, there are other publishers with new licenses too, so there's a lot to talk about. I mean, even beyond that, we got Serialization News, and we also had ICV2 do their Manga Week interviews with a bunch of publishers. So we had a lot of interesting industry insights from that to talk about as well. Yeah, a lot of stuff that we have to talk about even before we get to Cyberpub. And we are going to start off with another list from ICV2, uh, specifically this time the top 10 manga franchises of fall 2020. And so I guess I guess I could kind of start from the bottom here. At number 10, we have One Piece. At number 9, we have Naruto slash Boruto. At 8, we have JoJo's Bizarre Adventure with the Dragon Ball franchise breaking at number 7 uh, with Attack on Titan coming in at number 6. Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba at number 5. The Tokyo Ghoul franchise coming in at number 4. Berserk coming in at number three. Juji Ito's works coming in at number two, uh, with, no surprise, um, the My Hero Academia franchise coming in at number one. <laughs> so, again, that shouldn't surprise anybody, but uh, I think the rest of the poll here is kind of interesting, uh, considering uh, I, I just happen to have the uh, the fall 2019 list open in front of me, and um, I don't know if you want to call it a surprise, but definitely, like, Possibly the most unique addition on here is with Attack on Titan. Obviously, with the new season out, that's uh, that's been raising interest again as of late. Whereas in 2019, it wasn't even on the list at all. So there's that. Also, uh, I just noticed this. Uh, Pokemon was on the uh, 2019 list, and that is nowhere to be found in the 2020 list. That is interesting. I think it just goes to the strength of these other manga franchises. No, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, it, it's just kind of weird to think that, like... We have so many franchises that can, I mean, as far as manga goes specifically, that can, like, really kind of tackle with the likes of Pokemon, as big of a behemoth as that is. But yeah, no, I mean, uh, I guess, was there anything you wanted to say about this list in particular, or? Well, these are all pretty 
popular titles that we already knew were extremely popular. I would say that Berserk being as high up as it is, it's always a little bit of a surprise. It really does carry Dark Horse on its back, both manga-wise and just general-wise. But it also, you know, with how little new Berserk gets released, you get a new volume once a year if you're lucky. I think it just goes to the strength of that series that with so few new volumes, just on the strength of its backlog, its catalog, it just continues to sell like that. I mean, I'm sure those deluxe hardcover editions like kind of help drive up the sales, but still, it's quite astonishing you would outsell like, you know, these behemoth franchises like Demon Slayer, Attack on Titan, and Dragon Ball that we know are consistently like increasing and being hyped up and all that. And Junji Ito, it's always like incredible treat to see how successful his works are doing. Like he really has broken into like being a mainstream household name in the comic scene that even people outside the manga sphere will pick up and read and enjoy his work. So like the fact that he's number two as a franchise behind MHA, like the preeminent, the dominant franchise in, in the manga scene in North America, like that's really, really something. Mm-hmm. I mean, just kind of comparing both 2020 and 2019, like basically Berserk and Junji Ito switched places where Junji Ito was just number three last year and now it's number two. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just going back to Berserk, yeah, I, I have to agree. Like that for as little as we get, yeah, I just I can't believe it's as high as it is, especially since like, you know, I, I was I've just been kind of under the impression that Dark Horse really doesn't care about like reprinting their stuff, quite honestly. Or at least with some of their titles. Um, I don't know. Berserk is the least one that is pretty available in print now. I know for a while there was a stretch where some of the volumes were hard to get, but I think now it's pretty easy to get all the volumes, and especially with those new hardcovers. I think it's pretty readily purchasable. This might be like a small tangent, but I and I'm not sure if like I've asked this before, but like I really wonder if that last anime adaption it had, like despite it not being very good at all, like I really wonder if that had any like effect on its sales whatsoever at any point. I think it was already doing well from what I recall, but it, it surely did not hurt, even though the anime was not well received. I think just having more conversation about Berserk drove more people to the manga. Mm. I mean, precisely because the anime wasn't very well made. <laughs> that probably drew people to the manga to read a better, drawn, more aesthetically appealing version of the story. But yeah, no. I mean, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know if there's really much else to say about this list other than, uh, I guess one other like really small thing I noticed is just... Um, it's just how low JoJo is on the list compared to last year, where uh, in 2019, it was all the way up at like, uh, right at number four, where now it's like it like four places down. But I mean, you know, JoJo still being in the top 10 list of manga franchises overall is still a very good thing. Like it obviously still sells very well. Um, I'd be interested in seeing how well it does when um, when those new volumes of uh, Golden Wind eventually come out. Yeah, I am curious because I think Golden Wind as an anime was really, really well received. Yeah. And so I think people are really excited for the manga of it to come out. So, yeah, I'm curious. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but we should talk about this next list from ICB2 if you want to take that away. Yeah. So we also got a list from them that tallied the most efficient manga series for retail shelves, aka the most efficient manga franchises. What qualifies as an efficient manga franchise is the most bang for their book a retailer can get for a particular series. So how many copies it sells divided by how many volumes there are. So with the series with shorter volume counts that drive huge sales rank higher than longer series with also high volume counts. Like you have to take into account the ratio of how many books are being sold and how many sales it's getting in return. As such, you'll see a little bit of a different order in and some other titles you didn't see on the top 10 franchises list in this list. To go from bottom to top, we have a number 10 Tokyo Ghoul. Then number 9, we have Given. At number 8, we have Wodakoi. At 7, we have Akira. 6 is Demon Slayer. 5 is MHA. 4 is Chainsaw Man, 3 is Helsing, 2 is Toilet Bound Hanako-kun, and 1 is Junji Ito. And it's remarkable. I mean, again, this goes to show Junji Ito why it's so lucrative for retailers is that he only has a couple books, but they drive a lot of sales. And that's in comparison to MHA, which also is driving a lot of sales, but it has more books out. So the ratio of sales comparatively is lower for MHA. And it also is interesting to just check in on these other series on this list who also have shorter volume counts. Series that have less than 10 volumes out in print right now that are selling extremely well. I think this is a great success story for Yen in particular with Toilet Bound Hanako-kan. Obviously Hanako-kan is a still ongoing shonen series, but currently there's only about 7 volumes out. And with just those 7 volumes... In terms of the ratio of the amount of sales those volumes had compared to, again, that number, I mean, it is a more efficient seller than MHA even. So we're really seeing that title explode for Yen. And I'm quite happy to see another publisher besides Viz have such a success story like that. But we're also seeing, interestingly, even though we consider Berserk to be, you know, Dark Horse's highest selling franchise... And it very well maybe actually Helsing, which is only a 10 volume series, sells so much that it ranks on this list of number three, where Berserk doesn't rank on this at all. Which I think, I guess, shows the longevity of Helsing and its enduring popularity, which, I mean, we'll discuss later, is probably catches a lot of attention. But it's also cool to see, like, Chainsaw Man again, not as many volumes out right now, but doing extremely well. Even the ratio is of sales is even higher than MHA even. And then we got stuff like Akira, Wodokoi, and Given, which are nice to see. Particularly because these represent genres not normally represented on the top 10 franchises list. With Wodokoi being a romance series and Given being a BL romance series in particular. So it's nice to see those are doing extremely well. Yeah, Given in particular was surprising because, you know, we, we so very rarely, if at all, see any kind of, like, BL representation on this on these kinds of lists at all. Yeah, that definitely is a breakout title for LGBT series, I think, in general. 
this has a lot of buzz, so it's glad to see it's uh, racking up some good sales. I know a lot of people like it. Yeah, it is really great. Mm, I have to check it out sometime. Uh, I guess, was there anything else we wanted to mention with this list before we moved on? I mean... It's interesting to see what series are doing well, and relative to one another, especially. Yeah, because, I mean, admittedly, I, I didn't really, like, fully understand the criteria for this list going in, but... I think the the with with the way you explained it, I think yeah, that's it's just kind of interesting. Like what 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 else besides like I guess the I don't know what you would call it the I guess the more typical series that plays on these lists. I it is interesting to see like what else does well besides those. Yeah, but I think that does it for our talk of lists. So let's go into our talk of serializing manga and on the subject of. Transcending Trailblazing LGBTQ series. Let's talk about Nagata Kabi because she is coming out and has come out with a new manga about her eating disorder called Straying Warrior Kaba Nagate Go Gourmet that's being published on Futabasha's web action website. It, yeah, it's basically a manga that recounts Nagata's relationship with food and her eating disorder and like how different foods she would eat and go to for comfort, but they don't really make her feel better. It just is is like a chronicle of her different addictions to different foods at different points in her life. And Dakazu on Manga Machinations reviewed the first chapter of this, and it was, in his words, very depressing, which is sad to hear. Definitely not a feel-good food manga. I am curious to read it, but it does make me sad to see Nagata continue to write stories about how dysfunctional her life is. And I just want her to be happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I remember listening to that conversation, too. And I mean, um, I don't know, maybe this is something we could talk more about when uh, we hopefully eventually get to maybe talking about her, uh, her, her newest work to come out in English. Alcoholic Escape from Reality, yeah. So... We will see about that one for sure. And I'm sure Seven Seas will pick this up as well. So I, I'm curious to read it, but I also feel guilty and a little hesitant because, you know, I, I'm really sad to see Kabi is still struggling in her life, but I, I hope for the best for her. Next, we've got some new series launching in PT comic. From some very established creators. These have already launched by the time you're listening to this. And they're both going to be... It's going to be a short stylization. We have a new manga from uh, Maki and Joji. Who is known for An Incurable Case of Love. Which is being published by Viz. And I've heard a lot of great things about that series. We don't totally know what the premise of their new work is, but I'm definitely curious about it. We also got a new one-shot from Zumimiya Zodo called Play Game, and they are going to launch a new manga in the July issue of Petit Comic in June. And I have read Miyazono's work published in English, Everyone's Getting Married. I really enjoy that series, so I'm very much looking forward to a new work from them. And I'm hoping if it... uh, Picks up Steam, Viz will publish that series as well. But next, we've got some new manga related to Baronson, if it's a North Profane. I mean, namely, he is coming out with a new manga in May. Yeah, so in the March issue 
of Shigaku Khan's big comic Zokan. It was announced in that issue in particular that uh, Bronson and uh, Nozaki Hanaichi uh, will be coming out with a manga called Two Beat on uh, on May 17th. And uh, Bronson in particular is credited for the original work while uh, Hanaichi is credited as the illustrator, basically. And uh, the manga in particular is set in Shinjuku's famous Kabukicho Entertainment District and centers on Hageo, who is a down-on-his-luck middle-aged man who opens the uh, Yorozu Agency Company and uh, Kabukicho. Some of this sounds a little familiar. Um, as well as Okura, a detective who makes himself at home in, uh, within the company. Uh, the hard-boiled action manga will center on the pair being involved with, a, with various incidents with the first one to enter their door being a high school girl who is looking to acquire a handgun. Uh, so I could tell this is going to be a uh, probably a pretty action-packed series. Uh, it looks interesting. In general, I'm not really too familiar with Brunson's work outside of Fist of the North Star, so like, I think this would be, I think this would be a pretty interesting thing to check out. Yeah, the, these kind of hard-boiled macho stories are Bronson's bread and butter. So it definitely seems very up his alley to illustrate. No, yeah, for sure. But kind of speaking of Fist of the North Star, there is a new Fist of the North Star uh, spinoff manga that has been launched on uh, Comic Xenon uh, this past February 26th. It's basically what if the original Fist of the North Star was just a live action series being uh, filmed on a large set. It's kind of what Togashi's original like idea or like uh, one of his ideas for Yuhaksha was is like pull back the cordon and reveal like all the characters were just actors. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thought that because that was like literally the first thing I thought of too. And yeah, I, I really I really like the uh, the key visual here of Kenshiro talking to the director with everybody just kind of looking over their script. Man, it would be really great if Fist of the North Star, uh, if the Viz release of Fist of the North Star did well enough for this to get picked up. Like this, th this, this looks like this looks like something I'd really, really want to read. Yeah, that would be fun. I like these kind of uh, premises that play with the premise of a series and reimagine the characters in different settings. No, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, ho ho hopefully, maybe one day this gets picked up. Maybe, possibly. Yeah. Well, we also have a new manga coming from Kazana, who previously published Nano Hazard on Jump Plus and Manga Plus. Now, we didn't have a lot of kind things to say about Nano Hazard, but uh, yeah, their new manga, Strange Moon, is about a metropolitan police department, special crimes, countermeasures, public safety S section, which they basically try to investigate crimes if possible, explain which science and have links to mysterious creatures. So this has been publishing and it remains to be seen whether Manga Plus will pick this up at some point. But, you know, I'm curious about it, even though we weren't too fond of the Nano Hazard. I'm not even sure if Manga Plus could pick this up, considering it's, I think it's from another publisher. Oh, that's true. It is publishing on Webcomic Gamma. So that's from Takashobo. So, yeah, it's probably had to be picked up by someone else. Wasn't Nanohazard, like, one of the other uh, manga we talked about on the episode that was also, like, not super great? Yes. Yeah, okay. I, I feel like I remember Maxi telling us the entire plot of it on that episode, and, yes, I, and, I, and I totally they forgot. Did. It like, was very funny. I totally forgot, like, everything that it was about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, 
I mean, I don't know. Like, j- j- just because that series wasn't super great doesn't mean that this one will maybe be a little better. So I mean, never say never. Yeah. But speaking of Manga Plus related things, we have a kind of a big series ending in early April here. Yeah. So uh, the Vertical World from Ku Tanaka, it has been confirmed by Tanaka themselves that the series will be ending on Shonen Jump Plus on April 1st with chapter 120. I feel bad because this is also another one of those series that I remember when we talked about it on the show that I, I really, really liked and I wanted to read more of, but like I just haven't really gotten back to it. Maybe eventually I'll I'll read the rest of it and maybe we could talk more about it on the show or something. I don't know. Um, there there are a couple manga plus series that like we've talked about the first few chapters of on here that like I would love to revisit for the podcast eventually, possibly, but. Uh, the, so that's ending, and uh, you know it's it's still available on Manga Plus for anybody who hasn't checked it out yet. I, I, I still, uh, it still gets a pretty big hearty recommendation from me. So yeah, I'm very excited to read through the entire story beginning then once it finishes because I also fell off on it a little bit. So yeah, I'm definitely excited to see how it's going to end. It was such a vi- unique series and how it used the vertical format. So I'm I'm very, very excited to to see how where it's gonna end. How it's gonna end. Now speaking of endings, we have a pretty big series ending pretty soon here, and that's Horomiya. It will probably end in a few days by the time you're listening to this. It's going to end March 18th in Monthly G Fantasy. And yeah, Horomiya's been going for ten years. And it's for that entire time, it's been pretty raved about as one of the best uh, romantic comedies in the game. And certainly with the anime adaptation airing the season. Like, a lot more buzz about it. A lot of people get into really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of good things about this one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very fun series of very fun characters. And, yeah, it, it does some interesting things in r- romantic comedy. You don't often see, like, characters exploring their kinks with one another. Because Hori has a huge abuse fetish. Like, she likes being scolded at and slapped. That's <laughs> It's interesting. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a fun series. I'm curious to see how this will end. And since Yen is publishing the series, we'll hopefully get that final volume out pretty quickly here. <laughs> and our last bit of serialization news is related to basically a series we thought we were ending, but it is not. Because Moriarty Patriot is indeed going to include past the final case arc. The latest story of the series was an adaption of like the legendary final case of Sherlock Holmes where he faced Moriarty, but I guess they're they're going to continue on past that, but a new arc called the Empty House Adventure Arc. So uh, the ending of Sherlock and Moriarty's story in the original canon of Doyle's Holmesverse is, uh, is not going to be the end for the characters in Moriarty the Patriot. So I'm definitely curious to see what story can take place after, quote-unquote, the final case. All right. But I think that about does it for all of our serialization news, and we should uh, get on to talking about some licenses. But before we talk about at least most of the licenses that have come out since the last time we recorded news... um, uh, This was something that that we totally forgot to talk about uh, when it was first announced. Um, But on Mangamo in particular... Uh, they have added the original Gutsy Frog manga all the way back from uh, uh, 1970-something. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, 
But uh, this was, like, one of the first, like, really big popular, like, gag series from Shonen Jump back in the day. And uh, I know there have been, like, attempts online to try to, like, you know, uh, fan sub the anime and whatnot. But uh, now you can read the first 28 chapters of the original Gutsy Frog on Mangamo, which is, which is really cool. Uh, I really like seeing a bunch of uh, classic manga being added to these subscription services. I hope we get more. Yeah. Um, from from the little I've kind of like skimmed of Gutsy Frog, it, it looks like it gets pretty funny. I uh, I definitely want to read more of this when I get the chance. Yeah, it's a pretty charming classical gag manga, and I definitely it embodies that in a full sense of it. It is like gag a page, gag a minute type of storytelling, or like it moves very fast to the next joke very kind of erratic attention span to you but it, that's what gives it its charm yeah for sure so uh again that's on mangamo mangamo is 4.99 a month and uh yeah go uh, go read this if you have the chance uh i mean a- along with like literally everything else that's on mangamo like it, you'll you, you'll probably won't uh run out of stuff to read on there anytime soon mm-hmm. they got a lot of variety and a big catalog you can't necessarily say the same for Crunchyroll's manga service, but they have added a new simulpub. I was curious why Kodansha USA did not publish a simulpub for the Seven Deadly Sins sequel, Four Nights of the Apocalypse, from the very first chapter, but they have finally done it as of the fifth chapter and going forward, and it is available not only on Crunchyroll manga, but also Comixology and everywhere else Kodansha sells their digital comics and digital simulpubs. And yeah, it's a, so far it's a very cool adventure story about Percival, who was a kid who was basically just living out in the wilderness with his grandpa, but... You know, he had a very peaceful, happy life, but then one day they're attacked by this knight who kills his grandfather, who reveals himself to be Ironside, who is his actual father, who he thought was dead. So he basically goes off on this journey to find his father and get revenge for him murdering his grandpa. And it's it's a very fun, adventurous story so far. And it's nice to revisit the Seven Instance world. It does give a lot of Dragon Ball vibes. Like, first of all, it reminds me a lot of Goku. And the adventuring aspect also feels very familiar. And also his relationship with the female lead is also where Goku Bumo else. And Suzuki is a huge fan of Dragon Ball. So I think this kind of like super wears those influences on his sleeve. So I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's nice to just revisit this world and the characters are really fun. So I'm looking forward to seeing where it's going. But this brings us to, I think, our new licenses that we want to talk about that were announced in the past month or so. Oh, yeah. I mean, we mentioned it at the top of the show, but like, not even just with Seven Seas, though, they definitely came out with the like biggest number of licenses over the past month. Like, we got stuff from them, Yen Press, Viz, like, almost every publisher, I think, came out with something. I guess, uh, Lum, do you want to go ahead with your list, or do you want me to do mine first? I can start, sure. So, I guess, before I go into mine, how we chose what each of us would talk about is that Colton picked out his first, and then I picked up what else I was interested in after that. Mm, Because, I mean, like, I'm sure if we both just kind of picked, like, whatever we wanted... Our, our list probably would have shared some similarities. Oh, definitely. There definitely would be crossover. But yeah, I think we both balanced out with about uh, 10-ish titles we wanted to bring up. 
Yeah. And yeah, I'm starting off with Seven Seas because Seven Seas had their big stunt months where they, <laughs> again, crash this with a tidal wave and new licenses one per day. It was like a tide every day. You had to weather. You had to navigate. And of that month of new licenses, I picked about a week's worth that I found was very interesting. The first one of which is the I'm in love with a villainous manga. The manga adaptation of Inori and Hanagata's light novel series that Seven Seas is also publishing. This is going to be released both physical and digital in July. And it is about an office worker who gets reborn as the protagonist of her favorite Girls of the Tony Game Revolution. And the first person she encounters is her favorite character, the villainess Claire. And she wants to do what the game never allowed her to do, romance Claire instead of the male leads. Which I'm totally for. And I'm very curious to see how that love story plays out. So I think this is a funny twist on the reborn as a villainous genre that's been popping up as of late. With a Yuri tinge. And I'm very curious to read it. I'm also looking forward to Skip and Loafer by Misaki Takamatsu. That's going to come out in a digital in August. It's about an excellent student from a small town, Iwakura Mitsumi. And she always dreamt from leaving her town to go to a prestigious university and make a big change in the world. But she was so focused on her goal that she wasn't really prepared for how overwhelming living in the big city is in high school. But she makes fast friends with a classmate who is very handsome, but also very laid back. Almost as laid back as she is overprepared. So the story is about this naive country girl trying to make it big, the big city, with her new laid back friend by her side. And this sounds just like a very cute little slice of life premise. And I think the art on the cover is very charming. So I'm definitely going to give this a check out for sure. I'm also curious about Monster Guild, the Dark Lord's so-called comeback, or no good comeback rather. This is going to come out printed digital in September. It comes to us by Toro, and it's about a Dark Lord who had to kind of monotonously fight a hero who kept coming back to life. Eventually, it looks like he loses the fight and dies, but in actuality, he saved himself by putting his soul into an empty vessel. And he's planning a comeback. And though he's weak now, he's teaming up with fellow misfits like a slime, an orc, an interfit, and a dark elf. And he's going to rebuild his evil empire one bubble step at a time. So, in a way, it's kind of a marriage of Overlord and reincarnated as a slime in terms of a villain kind of like amassing followers, but also, you know, unifying different races and fantasy creatures in order to build an empire. So I'm very curious about this one. This seems like a lot of fun. Next, Seven Seas had two cat manga that I was kind of interested in. The first being the masterful cat is Depressed Again Today by Hitsuji Yamada. That's going to come out in digital and print in September. It's about a girl who takes in a stray black cat who ends up basically beaking her uh, housekeeping life partner. He's a giant cat, not your ordinary feline. And he really takes great pride in his culinary skills. And... He always gets really excited for a good sale at the supermarket, so Saku, she might not have it all together. But she has this cat 
to take care of her and look after her. This sounds like it could be very, very cute. But on the flip side of cute, we've got Creepy Cat. This comes to us from Cotton Valent. And it is a basically a graphic novel compilation of their webcomic series. And this is going to be released as full-color graphic novels, starring large trim editions starting this October, both print to digital. And yeah, the premise of this one is that a girl named Flora moves into this old house with a goddess flare and a mystery. But she's not alone in the place. There's a weird cat that's already living there, not living. And it doesn't really behave like a typical cat because it faces through solid objects and tries to eat a police officer. But Flora cozies up to her new but creepy yet adorable roommate. And there are a lot more spooky surprises in the store for her. And I'm really in love with the art style on the cover for this one. It looks super interesting. It sounds like a lot of fun. And yeah, definitely curious to pick this up. I think this is a good manga release during the Halloween season as some seeds are planning to. But next we've got another kind of supernaturally Halloween festive manga, though this one ain't spooky so much as as uh, Charmin's Slice of Life. This is Daily Report about my witch senpai, which comes with us from Maka Mochida. This is going to come out, print to digital, next January. And... This is basically key delivery service if he was an office worker, essentially. Like, the main protagonist, he's a dude who's kind of like an office drone, but his ally is his senpai Shizuka, who's a witch and always ready to lend the hand to those who needs. But, you know, Mizono thinks she should take better care of herself because she, you know, kind of stresses her out and uh, runs herself ragged, you know, zipping around on her broomstick. So, is he overly concerned for her by mere respect, or is there more there? And so it's a magical romantic comedy that is going to cast a spell on you, and certainly it's cast on me because I'm very intrigued to see this witch's misadventures in the city as an office lady. But then, we've also got Tai Ari Deshida, which is of the Seven Seas licenses, perhaps the one I am most excited for. It sounds super, super cool and interesting. This is going to come out this September, both print and digital, and there's an anime adaptation coming soon as well. It's basically set in this girls' academy, which is very elegant school and expects, you know, all its students to be, you know, very refined, respectful young ladies. And the main protagonist, Aya, she gets into this school on a scholarship and she wants to grow, you know, as lovely as her fellow student idol, Sher Yui. But she discovers that her idol has a terrible secret. She's a trash-talking combo-chaining newbie stomach and ruthless hardcore Gramer. And so could a mutual indulgence in a no-holds-bared video game combat grow to a deeper port between these two girls? So I like this is a basically competitive game manga starring these girls. And it looks like it's going to get pretty intense based on the fact that one of the characters like crown pretty intensely with a determined expression on the cover. So I'm excited for this one, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. And that about does it for my Seven Seas wave that I wanted to surf down. And next I'm going to head into two titles from Viz that I'm definitely very excited for as well. One of those being My Love Mix-Up from Wataru Hinakure and Aruko from My Love Story fame. And the premise or synopsis of Viz provides that it's pretty succinct, but... 
pretty intriguing. Boy loves girl, girl loves other boy. But then the other boy thinks the first boy loves him. So we've got kind of a LGBTQ love triangle going on there. And I'm definitely for that. It gives me kind of blue flagish vibes. So I'm definitely curious. And especially since Arco is illustrating it. I love her art in my love story. Definitely curious to read another manga drawn by her as well. But the big license from Viz that I'm excited for, of course, is the long-awaited release of Mao, Wunkotakashi's current and newest manga. And yes, it is basically Inuyasha mixed with Renee, set in the Taisho era, about, you know, a girl who basically is kind of whisked away back to the Taisho era. There was an incident in her childhood where she was attacked by a demon cat, and so now she also has kind of these supernatural powers where she can kind of transform into like a a cat-like demonic state and that gives her some super strength abilities and she basically teams up with this exorcist named Mao who is kind of hunting down this demon cat because there's a big history between them and a conspiracy that unfolds the more you read the manga about there's more than what it seems and the relationship between these characters and what's going on in the world and in the past of these characters so it's very intriguing. You can definitely tell that Takashi has kind of learned how to pace her stories and her mysteries a little more uh, focused and, succ- and succinctly in this series compared to Inuyasha, where she was really much experimenting with the format for the first time. So it definitely is a reflective of those refined skills, and it's really, really engaging and interesting i'm really excited for it i think people will really dig it when the manga comes out and also when it inevitably gets adapted into anime i think people who have been disappointed with yashihime in particular will find it when it gets adapted into anime a breath of fresh air because this is definitely takahashi kind of on the on the top of her game in terms of writing interesting horror mystery action type stories next we've got uh, some stray titles from other publishers all want to mention to round off. First being Girlfriend Girlfriends coming out from Kodanji USA as a digital first title. And of course this comes from Hiroyuki and it's basically the full-fledged serialization adaptation of its previous Dujinshi uh, that I reviewed for all comments that we mentioned in our conversation on Takahashi which is two timing fair and square. And what I liked about this series was that this is basically about a polyamorous relationship of this guy dating these two girls, but these two girls are also into each other. So it is pretty much polyamory. And it's just them navigating that. And yeah, I think it, I love the way that Hiroyuki writes these idiosyncratic idiot character protagonists that are also sincere in their earnestness and wearing like their heart and saying what's on their mind without any shame or just without any fear. Like I, I enjoy that a lot. It makes for some very funny characters and very funny situations. So I'm really excited to read the full-fledged manga that that Dojin kind of has evolved into. And see how he kind of has fleshed it out even further. And finally, the last title I want to mention comes to us from Ablaze. Which, interestingly enough, is going to be publishing a new comic based on Leiji Matsumoto's Captain Harlock manga called Space Park Captain Harlock. This is going to be drawn by French artist Jérôme Alipri. And it's going to be published as full-color 32-page comics in June. And... 
yeah, it's interesting. It's going to be released in kind of an issue format, essentially. And the first issue is going to have like a main cover by Derek Chu, but there are also going to be additional covers by a bunch of other artists as well. So they're really going all in to have a, a lot of artists collaborate on this one, which makes it feel very special. And yeah, this manga is a collab between Akita Shoten and the French publisher Kana. So it's an interesting, like, French-Japanese co-production manga. And it takes place in the timeline of the original series, during a time when Earth is being threatened by an invasion by the Silvadries, and despite being banished as a pirate, Harlock is not going to give up on the end of the world. But the danger comes directly from Earth, not space, because a team of scientists discovers the Silvadries monosolium, where they find information about terrifying genetic manipulations, about destructive power, capable of either providing Silvadries immortality, or putting an end to the civilization. So there's an unprecedented gold spell in Earth, which is someone who... <laughs> has experienced that uh, in Minnesota just a few weeks ago. It's resonated a little bit. But uh, yeah, it might only be a taste of what's to come of what this new enemy has in store. So I'm a big fan of Matsumoto's works and Harlock, and I'm definitely curious because it's a French-Japanese co-production, like kind of the, the tone and the take on it. And yeah, this sounds like a really cool new interpretation of the franchise. So I'm definitely looking forward to this one. And I think that about rounds off my licenses that I'm looking forward to beyond the ones that I think you're going to get into here, Colton. So I'm curious for you to take it away. Yeah, sure. And um, I'm just going to start off with a really, really big one that Seven Seas ended off their month with. I mean, I, I do have some other Seven Seas titles to uh, to talk about after that, but I'm I'm probably the most excited about this one in particular, and that is uh, Seven Seas is going to be releasing Shotaro Ishinomori's original Common Rider manga uh, that'll be coming out on December 2021, and uh, it's going to be basically just like their uh, Go Ranger manga release that's going to be coming out soon. Uh, it's going to be all collected in one hardcover omnibus. Uh, all four volumes of the original series. That's 800 pages of manga that you have to look forward to. And this one I thought was especially surprising because if you check on Comixology right now, they still have all of the original Kamen Rider manga available digitally on there. So I'm wondering if Seven Seas just has rights for uh, to release it in print and not really like digital rights. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they certainly didn't announce digital alongside the print, so that may very well be the case. Yeah, I just kind of assume that's probably the case. So, like, I'm kind of interested in, like, how that'll end up working out. I mean, it's also interesting because, like, I've checked on there and, like, they just have a bunch of other, like, Ishinomori works on there. So, like, Comixology so far has been, like, the only place you can, like, read any of his stuff. But, you know, with, with the release of this and also Go Ranger, like, I'm, I'm glad that his stuff is, like, coming out in print again because... Again, Ishinomori is one of those manga authors that, like, just hasn't really had a lot of, like, exposure over here in North America in particular. Um, So, you know, the the more stuff that comes out of his in print, the better. And, I mean, you know, I've mentioned that I've dabbled in tokusatsu before, but, like, I was was really big into Kamen Rider for a while. And I still kind of am. I just don't really watch it as much anymore. Um, But, yeah, I love Kamen Rider. Uh, I've really liked what I've watched of the original Common Rider show on um, on on Verve in particular from Shout Factory. 
and yeah, I really can't wait to read the manga version of it, because uh, from what I've seen of it, it's very, very good. It still holds up, I think. So yeah, I'm definitely going to be buying that. And yeah, as far as like the other 7C stuff I've really wanted to mention, uh, this next one uh, I'm specifically mentioning because uh, I know Maxi was very excited about this being released. And look, I'm just going to admit, any anything that Maxi is reading, I'm at least kind of interested in. Maxi reads a lot of interesting stuff in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one being a Sundome Milky Way from Kazuki Funatsu. Again, coming from Seven Seas, that'll be released on August 2021, uh, in which the synopsis reads, uh, Sakura Yoshitake works hard at his corporate job and has very little time to himself. Uh, while driving home from his grandmother's birthday party, he sees a UFO and crashes his car. A horrifying alien approaches the wreckage and promptly passes out. Uh, Yet when he awakens in his apartment, he finds a beautiful half-naked woman sleeping next to him. Uh, His mystery savior is none other than the alien who caused his accident. She's come to Earth to seduce a human for the purpose of having a baby. Only whenever he touches her, she gets so embarrassed that she transforms back into her terrifying alien form. Uh, What's Yoshitaki to do about this sexy alien stuck in his apartment? And how is she ever supposed to have a baby if she can't even kiss someone without losing his control? And so, yeah, I'm, I also forgot to mention that uh, this also runs in Grand Jump, which is why, you know, we've seen Maxi talk about it on their Twitter account. And, you know, as far as Grand Jump goes in particular, like, I, I feel like with the really shitty adaptation that X-Arms is getting lately that I, I, I feel like it's my solemn duty to also support Grand Jump, you know. Uh, just because I know Maxi really loves that magazine, uh, and I know they love talking about the series in that magazine. So a- any chance I have to like read something from that magazine in particular, uh, I'll always take. So yeah, um, obviously, also this is going to be part of uh, Seven Seas is a Ghost Ship imprint title. If that wasn't um, if that wasn't obvious enough, and so yeah, uh, I'll, I'll 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 check this out. It seems like it might be up my alley. Uh, this next one I'm going to mention we've we've also we've actually talked about on the podcast before. I don't know if uh, anybody who's listened to episode seventy of the podcast way back when uh, might uh, this might sound familiar to uh, to past listeners. Uh, but we also have Happy Kanako's Killer Life from Toshia Wak- Wakabayashi. Uh, that'll be coming out also in August 2021. Basically about a woman who accidentally applies to become an assassin and an assassination agency. And um, as we remember from when we originally talked about the series, she ends up realizing she's a little too good at assassination, but she just kind of rolls with it. She just kind of sticks with the job and kind of goes from there, uh, possibly maybe falling in love with her uh, with her prickly yet kind of hot co-worker who she works with. Um, and yeah, this was a. Uh, like, I remember seeing this and thinking, like, yeah, we definitely talked about this before. I, like, it took me a second to realize, like, uh, where I had originally seen this from. But, uh, you know, if anybody's listened to that particular episode of the podcast I mentioned, we did talk about how Wakabayashi originally back in 2018 was, like, posting, like, short comic strips from the series or whatever in full color. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think translated by themselves or, like... yeah. And so, I mean, kind of looking back on that translation, it's not like, it's not bad, but like, I, it's definitely something that could use like a little localization, you know, Mm -hmm. especially with like all the animal puns and stuff that are in that series. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what an actual English publisher like Seven Seas can maybe do to make the localization even better, I think. And this is also like a full color manga for anybody who's interested in that kind of thing. So 
yeah, I, I I really liked what we read of it for uh, for the podcast back in the day. So like, I'm glad this is getting picked up, and I definitely want to check it out. Uh, next up, I really want to talk about uh, a life turned upside down. My dad's an alcoholic from Mariko Kikuchi, also coming from Seven Seas, being released uh, this November. And um, the, the the cover for this one in particular felt very reminiscent of uh, my lesbian experience with loneliness. I don't know if you agree. Well, it's definitely in that same vein of autobio comics about like pretty personal issues. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the graphical style was in part inspired by Kavi's work. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, like you mentioned, it, this is an autobiographical work about Mariko Kikuchi as she basically tells the story of like of what it was like dealing with her father's alcoholism and kind of grappling with that issue in particular. This work inspired a film that came out in Japan in 2019 that uh, I honestly hadn't heard of until now. But uh, I mean, I, I mean, first off, I would love to like check out the film in particular. I don't know if it's like been picked up by anyone or anything. I'll have to kind of look into that. But uh, but yeah, no. Uh, I mean, uh, th- this stood out to me just because, like, you know, I think, I think, thankfully, because of Nagata Kabi's works, I'm. I'm more interested and more open to like autobiographical manga or essay manga, whatever you want to call them. And uh, I, I really find interesting uh, essay manga like that, that deals with these like uh, grappling issues and whatnot. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely want to check this out. I'm, I feel like this will probably sell pretty well. I'm, I'm just going to make that prediction right now. Like I think, uh, uh, I think a lot of people will uh, probably find this relatable. I think. And then uh, next up, I wanted to mention uh, Boy Meets Maria by Peyo, coming out from Seven Seas this October. And uh, the synopsis reads, Taiga dreams of becoming an actor, so the first thing he does upon entering high school is join the drama club. Uh, There, he meets the beautiful, enigmatic Maria and immediately falls in love with her. Not long after, Taiga is told that she is actually a boy, but is that all there is to Maria's story? Uh, this beautifully illustrated one-volume tale, the debut work of Peyo before their untimely passing in 2020, rest in peace, um, explores the layered nature of personal expression and the fluidity of the power of love. And uh, speaking of things that I think will probably be will probably sell well and like mean a lot to a lot of people, like I could easily see this uh, series being just as powerful as uh, Our Dreams at Dusk, also released by Seven Seas. Like th- this, this sounds like it's probably going to be a giant gut punch and I'm, I'm totally all here for it. I mean, and in general, like, uh, I find myself being really interested in LGBT works just in general. So, you know, also this being like only one volume, I'm sure, uh, will be a, uh, a point of interest for a lot of people as well. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't wait to read this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm already like really loving the cover art for it and everything. So like this, this, de- I'm, I'm definitely going to like pick this up. Yeah, it looks very beautiful. It's very tragic that the creator passed away after just releasing their debut work. And I can only hope that the work does find, you know, an audience and a lot of love because the author has posthumous, you know, this is being released posthumously. Mm-hmm. I hope so, too. All right. Uh, but that's about it for my picks from Seven Seas. Uh, I want to move on to Yen Press and talk about Bungo Stray Dogs Beast coming this August 2021 uh, with the story being written by Kafka Asagiri and uh, being illustrated by uh, Sango Harukawa and Shiwasu Hoshikawa. 
and basically takes place in a parallel universe of the original Bungo Stray Dogs, where Ryunosuke Aktagawa is on a desperate mission to save his younger sister, uh, which leads him to being recruited by the armed detective agency. Uh, but standing in his way is none other than the fearsome white reaper of the port mafia, Atsushi Nakajima. And so, yeah, this is, uh, you know, I've talked about before, like, I, I like Bungo Stray Dogs. Uh, at least I like what I've watched of it. I still need to, like, catch up on it. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in, like, how this might turn out again with Octagawa, like, I guess being the protagonist and Atsushi being, like, the antagonist. I think I think that's an interesting, like, dynamic there. So, yeah, I'm just interested in more Bungo Stray Dogs in general. So uh, this sounds like something that I'd, uh, that I would like to check out eventually. Uh, next up, uh, we have a license from Denpa, one that I think uh, a lot of people are probably looking forward to, with uh, Barch Comes In Like a Lion from Chika Umino. And, uh, you know, this obviously has a very, I, I would say a pretty, like, well-known anime at this point. I know a lot of people love that show. Um, but for those who don't know what it's about, it's basically about a character named Ray, who is a solitary, solitary player of Shogi uh, and his relationship with a neighboring family. Uh, he becomes acquainted with Akari and two young girls, Hinata and Momo, who also have a large number of cats. And so I know the premise for this probably doesn't sound like super exciting or anything, but it's it's not really getting into the grasp of all the fraught emotions explored in the series for sure. No, yeah. I mean, I, I was just going to say, like, I think the thing that really interests me about the series is that I know it. I know it really tackles uh, depression in a really interesting way, from what I understand. And from the little I've seen of the anime, like it just it, it looks like the kind of really emotional, like uh, heart wrenching story that I can get into. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, like for a while, I was really surprised that like no one had picked this up because I know the anime, it seemed like was uh, was doing well enough, I think. But I'm, I'm glad that Dempa came along to uh, to pick it up. And uh, I, I know they have like other stuff that they haven't really like announced yet that they're really kind of hyping up. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing like what else they'll announce eventually. And yeah, uh, I forgot to mention that uh, Dempa hopes to have this released by uh, summer 2022. Uh, I know that, you know, obviously Dempa is a very small publisher. They're working. They're not working with a lot of people. So sometimes the releases get delayed. But, uh, you know, I'm sure eventually they'll come out. But yeah, really looking forward to checking this out. Yeah, I certainly applaud them from literally announcing this at the start of March. They really did bring March in like a lion. <laughs> they fall out with their, their biggest announcement they could possibly make. That's pretty great. All right, but the last two licenses I want to mention here are from Viz and... Uh, you know, with the Viz licenses specifically, like that was really fun. Like just kind of uh, I was I was there like paying attention to my phone, seeing all these licenses being listed off when 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 they were like announced and um, really got to give it to Viz for bringing over more Shonen Sunday stuff than I thought they would. Quite honestly, you know, you, you mentioned Mao earlier. I, I left that up to you because I know you're a huge fan of Rumiko Takahashi, obviously. And I, I mean, like, uh, th that was something like I was also kind of interested in, too, because I had heard so many good things about it uh, from you, especially. But th this one I know is like, as far as like Sunday stuff goes, is like setting Sunday's world on fire. Like, I know it sells really well. Uh, Sakaki in particular was very, 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 very happy when this was announced. And that is uh, Free Ren Beyond Journey's End. 
coming out on November 9th, 2021, uh, written by Kanehito Yamada and uh, illustrated by Sukasa Abe. And from what I understand, the conceit for this series is that it basically takes place kind of after Happily Ever After, that whole kind of thing where it's like, it focuses on characters who have basically already gone on like their whole big adventure and it basically kind of deals with their life afterwards, kind of like what they're up to and everything. So, you know, I, I, I guess obviously that's a very like interesting premise for a lot of people, because, again, like I know a lot of people have been very into this. There's been a lot of buzz around this. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if like maybe there was an anime coming out for it at some point. Maybe you never know. And yeah, like like I said, like just 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 the, the like the sheer buzz around this alone, like really has me interested in checking it out soon. Um, and again, I'm, I'm very happy for Sakaki that this is coming out. But uh, so I started off with a really big classic manga license, and I'm going to end with another here with probably the, like the biggest thing I'm, that I was excited for from this announcements with Akira Toriyama's manga theater. And um, this is a huge deal in particular because, I mean, you know, we, we've gotten like some of Toriyama's stuff outside of Dragon Ball, but with like, you know, we've had Dr. Slump and... Uh, uh, Sandland, Kawa, and whatnot. So we've gotten, like, some of his other stuff. And I guess Jack with the Galactic Patrolman. There's that, too. So we've gotten, like, some of his other, like, non-Dragon Ball stuff here. But it's, like, there's so much. There's Like, Toriyama has, like, drawn so much shit over the past, like, 30 to 40 years that he's been working in the industry that, like, you know. Like, I know a lot of, lot of Toriyama fans in particular have been, like, just aching for more of Toriyama's other manga to come out. And now, now we're getting more of it. Mm -hmm. Toriyama's manga theater in particular basically collects like, like at least most of his one shots, I think. I don't know if it collects all of them, obviously, but like, like, a, like a good amount of his work from as early as like, uh, I, I guess, according to a Konzenshu, as early as like 1978, like well, well before like Dragon Ball. And I think even like just a little before Dr. Slump, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, I mean, look, like, I, I could go on about like all the one shots that are in this thing. But I mean, like, I, I think the thing that like I'm interested in the most is that because uh, uh, obviously they're, they're going to be collecting this in like one big hardcover omnibus thing that's like over 600 pages because uh, I'm assuming all these one shots are, are like at least like probably 30 pages long at the very least. And uh, yeah, the, the, like the one shots I'm looking forward to the most are... Uh, are his Dragon Boy one-shots, like, basically the prototype for Dragon Ball. I'm really excited that we're going to be able to get to read those officially. Yeah. And uh, something else I didn't know until looking up uh, info about the song Konzenshu was that uh, Greg Werner in particular is going to be translating this release. Yeah, which is pretty amazing, because Greg, like, one of his biggest starts in fan, and he ran a Dragon Ball fan site. So it's kind of crazy, like, his journey over 20 years from... You know, a huge fan to now, like, officially working on translating one of Toriyama's manga. That's pretty incredible. Oh, yeah. Like, that's it's it's quite the success story, if you're familiar with Greg Werner at all. But, yeah, no, th this was e this is easily, like, I think even more than the Common Rider manga coming out from Seven Seas. I think this is just, like, th this is just, like, the thing I'm probably mo the most excited about besides Fist of the North Star coming out later this year. Like, mm. I really feel like in terms of really big classic manga that everybody loves that we never thought was possible for it to come out uh, over here in the States, like, 
I, I think I think this year, this past year has been like uh like classic manga fans are really feasting, I should say. Most definitely. But yeah, no, I think that about does it for my list. I mean, I, I think overall, like a lot of really good licenses have come out since the last time we recorded news, just in general. I mean, especially from Seven Seas, like, holy shit. Uh, mm-hmm. Seven Seven Seas, I want to say, was at least half, if not, like, most of the licenses that have come out over the past few months that we haven't covered, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, I hope that uh, out of all these, there's something for you guys to look forward to. I mean, like, it's it's really hard to not be excited about, like, all the stuff that's been announced recently. Yeah. Uh, there's just a lot to look forward to and the year's just beginning so you know the rest of the year who knows whether surprises we have in store in terms of announcements no exactly all right but uh i think that about does it for licenses yes and it takes us to industry news and as you could tell from our talk of licenses like the manga industry and the anime industry generally is doing really really well it's booming and that's getting companies wanting to invest in it even more so and especially on the fan side of things so we have Basically, the three biggest publishers, Kodansha, Situation, and Shigekon, investigated my anime list, which is probably the biggest database website a lot of anime fans use. So, yeah, I mean, they're all investing in it through a third-party allotment, and they are going to use those funds to issue new shares, increasing its capital by, like, 11.33 million. And they're going to just... Together with my analysis, Paramount Company Media do, the companies are going to implement the Turbati allotment to underwrite half of the this amount that my analyst is planning to issue for shares to increase its capital. And yeah, the, the hope of that is to use these funds to accelerate expansion of this platform, focus on accessibility for new and returning users, promote information exchange, or reduce server robustness, adding advancing interconnection between fans and businesses. And uh, they want to achieve these goals through implementing infrastructure changes to increase speed and support advanced UI UX features, multi-language support for databases and user lists, iOS and Android application improvements such as dartboarded social functions, and upgraded user communication tool enhancements for increased information sharing. So they are really hoping to grow and refine my anime list as it is now into something even more like efficient and user-friendly. Which makes sense because, again, as more and more anime fans, as more people are getting into anime, like more people are also using MAL as a resource. And it does get a lot of traffic, so it makes sense for these companies to keep an eye on it and also want to kind of work alongside it. Because if they can basically interact all in the same space where a lot of the community is to, and use that space to also promote their stuff, like, I think that's a shared common interest for them. So we're curious to see where this investment leads and where MAL will end up thanks to it. I also wouldn't be surprised if like they possibly use like, you know, uh fan reaction and ratings to see like, you know, what titles are uh, you know, probably the most popular or most sought after maybe in the in the West in particular. Yeah, they are definitely after data. And I think that's definitely data they're going to use to inform future decisions of what they produce or publish. So very curious to see those ramifications too. Now to talk more about publisher-specific stuff, we've got a new person joining Viz. Laura Takaragawa is now been appointed as the new vice president of consumer products licensing slash promotions. 
They previously worked at Sanrio, National Geographic, Netflix. This is a newly created position that sees the integration of the company's licensed merchandising collapse, interactive and digital games, promotions across all licensed properties, which makes sense because this has been expanding into multimedia endeavors. Like they not only are publishing their own original comics, but they also have expanded into games and are working on original co-productions like, say, Monos for Netflix and stuff like that. So it makes sense that they, they wanted to have, like, a new brand manager for kind of all those properties. And, yeah, so Takaragawa is going to be responsible for all these licensing and newer product activities. And she's going to work alongside the other company leaders to shape Blaze's long-term growth plan to expand its portfolio and retail profile and all that businessy stuff. So very curious to see. I mean, this is just another interesting look at, like, Viz. Obviously, we know they're at the top of their game in terms of being a publisher. Like, they have the second most market share in the comics biz. And they really are hoping to expand their reach as an entertainment company even outside of that. And control the licensing and merchandising ends of their operations. So very, very curious to see how this works out for them in terms of that big route. Now, we mentioned before, off the top of the show, ICB2 had this big Manga Week event that they did, where they basically interviewed a bunch of different people from different publishers, alongside posting those reports we discussed earlier about the top franchises, to basically gauge where the manga industry is right now, how it's doing, especially in the past year, in the face of dealing with COVID and the quarantine. And so the first of these insights I want to go into, we basically got insights on Viz, Yen Press, and Token Pop. So the first of these that I want to go into is with Viz, basically comments from Kevin Hamrick. According to him, you know, it's been, this has been doing pretty good. Like, they had very great numbers. They think that, in general, the industry has benefited because Bookspan has reported an increase of nearly 43% in manga category sales and this saw all their own just a 70% increase of their own growth in the US market and the channels that are doing the best are places that had online operations places where people could place online orders and they could get shipped to them obviously because a lot of retail stores were closed so places that had online operations and you know very efficient websites you could order from those are the places that grew the most and it isn't just like Amazon that was a very lucrative online retailer for them, but also any place that had like, you know, their own online ordering system, like Books a Million, Barnes and Noble, or Right Stuff, even Walmart and Target, like the mass merchandise stuff that generally don't care a lot of manga, but increasingly are nowadays, those also had huge increases last year. And the comic series in general as a channel are doing okay. This is like talking about the direct market, like working to ship things to like, specific shops specialty shops and yeah the diamond hiccup didn't affect Liz that much because you know they goes through Simon Schuster and whatever so they didn't take too much of a hit from that and yeah like in general the comic stores are rebounding to also kind of find ways to order more books and yeah also the backlist is doing very well for Viz like a lot of their titles the catalog, not just the volume ones, are having a ton of copies being moved because it's not just like the discovery kind of aspect of like people will go into stores and just see a new title and pick it up. Now it's like people online are like ordering a bunch of things kind of en masse. 
essentially. And as a result of that, they had to reprint basically all the box sets. So there was like 37 box sets that they reprinted. Basically anything that has an anime is doing well for them. So like Haikyuu really grew when the last season of the anime started in last fall. And then, of course, Jujutsu Kaisen has taken off fast with the same kind of growth Demon Slayer had when its anime came out. And so they have to reprint that like as fast as it can to meet up with the demand. And they expect, obviously, stuff that have more future anime seasons coming to also grow pretty big. They actually commented on Pokemon. We mentioned that Pokemon wasn't in the top 10 franchises this year. But this year, you know, with it being the 25th anniversary of Pokemon and all, they have a lot more books coming their way. And they think that they will see, a, like, an uptick in Pokemon sales overall, not just Monk, but also the anime that Viz also distributes. And, yeah, like, I think the big problem, and this is, like, something that uh, also was discussed with the interview with Kurt Hasler from Yen Press, is that a big problem is, like, the bottleneck with printers, particularly in the fall when the demand was at its highest. And also a lot of companies had kind of rescheduled more of their list to the fall after when the quarantine first started. So that just caused, like, a big bottleneck of the printers. And that kind of was a problem when books ran out of stock and it was kind of difficult to get things reprinted because of all the demand for printing and shipping all these different books from all these different publishers. And also with the weather also being kind of tumultuous in a lot of areas that also affected shipping. But in general, like they were still able to successfully benefit from increased sales and readership from the demand of last year. And yeah, no one knows what the future holds, but uh, there's it seems things are doing pretty well at least on the viz end now to go to more yen press uh yen press's like comments on the industry from kurt hasler who is uh the managing director for viz i mean for yen press they did not like have like as immediate like a benefit from the quarantine as Viz did. They had like actually a hit in the second quarter of 2020, but in the summer and fall, they had a huge upswing. And so by the end of the year, that's what ended up making 2020 like a record year for them in terms of sales. And obviously the brick and mortar store struggled, but yeah, like I uh, mentioned, like the online retailers, those are what picked up the slack and saw real growth. But yeah, we mentioned the bottle pack and the problems with the printer capacity, you know, being just kind of at its limit. In general, though, it seems like they're working through that. So they are looking forward to some really great numbers starting the year strong and just continuing from that. And like they're seeing like a lot of diverse sales from them. Obviously, anime is driving a lot of titles that are like really picking up steam for Yen, but they're seeing a lot of different types of series from them getting a lot of buzz and namely the series that he name drops as being like really successful with them right now are Toilet Bound and Akokun, so I'm inspired so what Harmony and Fruits Basket and interestingly the titles that he sees being really big for Yen this year are Solo Leveling, Kyle's Little Sister, Love of Kill which is coming out this month and on light novel side Spy Classroom and Detective is Already Dead, latter of which has an anime coming out soon too. 
So it seems Yen has weathered the storm of the quarantine last year and is doing pretty well now. And it's looking like 2021 is going to be a pretty big year for them. Because as he mentions, like you could mistake the, the sales report they had in, November, in February for November sales. So again, mentioning like the fall was like the biggest growth period, the biggest sales period. Like if we're already at that level at the beginning of the year, just who knows, like the potential of growth towards the end. Now... Again, as we mentioned, uh, one of the people that ICB2 chose to interview for their Monk Week was uh, Tokyo Pop CEO Stu Levy, uh, the infamous fuckboy of the manga publishing biz himself. Uh, they aren't even shy about the reason why they reached out to him because Tokyo Pop was supported ICV2 when they were first starting out. So this is kind of like a nepotistic. You scratch your back, you scratch yours, give you kind of this publicity of this interview. Well, at least, at least they're honest. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess Stu is pretty honest with his uh, comments, which kind of are pretty revealing of his thought process. It is very funny, like <laughs> the hypocrisy of him saying, oh, you know, I don't think the manga market is great right now because Viz has a monopoly on half the market. Like, he tries to show shade and visit I'm mentioning Viz, but it's, like, so obvious what he's talking about. And yeah. he says, you know, oh, you know me, I'm a contrarian. The manga market, you know, it's back and it's growing, but, you know, I don't agree. I think that there needs to be more innovation, which is interesting because I don't think Tokyo Pop's done anything as innovative as what, show, as what Viz has done with the Shonen Jump app and Vault and its moves into digital, or even Kadansha with their moves into, like, making all their comics available on a lot of different digital platforms so i don't know if uh she really be casting stones necessarily yeah, seriously <laughs> and he thinks that manga has not grown as much as anime because you know relatively not as many people are into it or purchase manga to anime which i guess is in a sense, true, but I think that is still ignoring like the, the growth uh, medium has had still, so it's, it's kind of weird. But you know, in, in terms of insights, that was interesting about like the industry. Like he did say that, you know, yeah, like Amazon picked up a lot of slack. Online retailers picked up a lot of slack. Speaking of Tokyo Pop themselves as a publisher, it was interesting that he mentioned that. They had dips in quarter two and three, but quarter four, kind of like all the other publishers, was really great for them. But it really was a problem for them when Diamond was in shipping product because they relied on them. So, yeah, it does seem that, you know, Viz vetted the storm because they didn't really rely on Diamond. And Yen and Tokyo Pop did have that bit of a struggle in quarter two because they did kind of need them to get some books out to retailers. So I thought that was kind of interesting commonality. But it it seems that Levy is really focusing on like webtoons as an area of growth. And he thinks that manga needs to be more retailer friendly, like sold in like kind of the bigger chains, like even beyond like the, the comic book shops. And it is interesting he mentions Amazon as a double-edged sword because Amazon is like 20 to 30% of their business. It's a behemoth. They are relying on more and more, but for a lot of the publishing industry, it's like 80% of some publishers' business, which is not necessarily healthy because, like, you know, Amazon has a lot of control, but it is like a third-party kind of medium. So it could be kind of difficult, especially because Amazon, you know, they have a lot of control of what they sell, and 
like how they use their data and how their algorithms work. So, you know, they have to kind of navigate that and be wary of that, which I think is pretty worthwhile to consider. So, yeah, I think it's interesting that, like, again, he really feels like manga has not grown as much as other areas. Like, he mentions the music industry and Spotify, and, like, this, the interviewer mentions, like, you know, Spotify is kind of double-edged sword for the music industry, because a lot of creators aren't really getting a bunch of revenue thanks to it, but then he's like, oh, no, no, that's a fallacy, so <laughs> it's just amusing. I don't know, is he is he saying that because Tokyo Pop itself hasn't seen, like, a ton of growth, or... Well, it's interesting because Tokyo Pop itself actually seems to have some successes on its hand. Levy mentions that their romance line, Love of Love, is doing really well for them. It's their success story, particularly like Dekoboka Sugar Days is like a title that has done really well for them because they're on their fourth printing of it already. And they have like their Disney brand that seems to do pretty decent for them. They are like... Not like the old Tokipop where they were like one of the big names. They are like a niche boutique kind of publisher nowadays. So Levy seems kind of acceptant of that. But from that kind of metric, it seems that Tokipop is doing pretty decently for themselves now, it seems. So, you know, in spite of maybe levy's questionable business practices the fact that they just publish stuff people are interested in what with lgbtq romance titles like dickaboko you know that's working for them so i mean he is working with publishers that he wasn't working with before who don't know about his shady uh business dealings and how much of a miss tokyo pop was run before so i mean i guess he has managed to convince publishers to give him titles that are doing well in their hands. I think I saw somewhere in this article, or I I don't know if I'm just remembering this wrong, that like that they had originally like were uh they they were vying to try to acquire Demon Slayer. That has to be a misquote. Like I saw that's not in this article that went around like as at the start of some other article that I saw people throw around, but that doesn't make any sense for him to for I I think that's a misquote. Like, that would have been, oh, we would have, I, I don't think you could have ever reasonably been in the running to get Demon Slayer. Yeah, Sh- Shueisha isn't going to be like, oh yeah, let's just give, let's let's license Demon Slayer through someone else instead of, you know, the company we own have a stake in. Mm-hmm. Like, Viz would have to outright pass on a title for it to go to somewhere else, but even then, I don't think they're going to give it to Tokyo Pop and Stu Levy. I don't think you'll ever see Tokyo Pop publish anything from the jump line ever. No, 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 no. But yeah, there is just in general another report from ICV2 about how big a year manga's growth was in 2020. Because sales across the board were up 44%. Double digits in comic stores in 2020 compared to 2019. And, you know, for a lot of stories, it wasn't historically a big category, but even like local comic shops were saying like manga is really up for them. And particularly stuff by Junji Ito, they were mentioned by like every publisher ICV2 re, uh, re- like interviewed. Like Junji Ito stores like were really carrying like a lot of those manga sales. It seemed to journal horror titles because Parasite's also name dropped by one of the stores interviewed too. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I mean, manga is doing really well. It actually grew in 2020, despite the odds, and it, it seems to be on track for an even bigger year this year in 2021. 
And it's not just true of North America. The manga market in Japan also hit a few records too. It earned a record 612.6 billion yen in 2020, or 5.77 billion US dollars, which was up 23% from the total revenue in 2019, like 498 billion yen. It's the highest number that the All Japan Magazine and Book Publishers and Editors Association has tracked for the industry since they first started keeping records of this since 1978. So this is the highest income the industry has had since really 1995 was the last highest. And this is higher than that because in 1995, the industry accrued 186.4 billion yen. Of course, you can take into account inflation and all that, but I think the yen, from what I hear, is generally pretty stable compared to the, the US dollars, so maybe not. But it's still, it's it's quite a big sum, and it does show that, yeah, manga industry is really thriving right now. The 2020s look to be a, a roaring decade for it. And to speak about some of those specific series that are doing well, let's head into that. Because I think one of the titles that really grew was a title that came out mid last year, but has really surprisingly got off on a strong foot. You could say it's almost a monster of a success or a kaiju of success since (laughs) this is not the manga plus uh, localized station we're talking about here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so at this point, it's been revealed that Kaiju number eight not only has like one million copies in print, but it is apparently the fastest Shonen Jump Plus manga uh, to reach this milestone. Like, I remember when Spy Family came out, that sold quite a lot, I think pretty quickly as well. But apparently Kaiju number eight has like, I guess in, in terms of circulation, has even beat that. Yeah, I mean, but just one volume. It is reached a million copies in circulation. Spy Family, I think, needed the second volume to do that. But that just shows how incredibly popular, how big of a series it is. It's a huge seller already. And yeah, it's only on track to grow even bigger. I mean, even even as far as like how many people read it on the Shonen Jump Plus manga app, like, I mean, it's definitely topped over 70 million views on the app alone. Yeah, and it seems like every week for every new chapter that launches, like there are like 1.5 million views every chapter gets, which is crazy. Yeah, it's really crazy to think that so many people in Japan are like, in particular, really, really into this series. Not, not, not that I'm saying that it doesn't deserve it, but I mean, like, it's really interesting to see like how much fervor there is for it over there compared to. I mean, I don't know. It it makes me wonder, like, how people will feel about it when the first volume of that finally comes out over here. Yeah, we didn't mention it, but that was one of the announcements was made is that Kaiju number eight will be released in print this fall. So I am also curious to see, like, how big of a hit it'll be over here as well. I think it definitely gets a lot of buzz online. I think it definitely is a spy family kind of title that a lot of people talk and rave about. So I'm curious to see if that will also translate into sales. Mm -hmm. But I guess just to kind of talk about another high-selling manga that uh, we can't seem to get away from, and that is Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba, which has recently topped 150 million copies in circulation, which... uh, the, the article on Anime News Network uh, really kind of like gives a good timeline of like the increase in in volumes from as early as like April 2019 when the anime premiered. When the anime first premiered, it was only at 3.5 million. 
Mm-hmm. Less than two years ago. Yeah, just think the extent of how much it's grown. 43 times, essentially, as much in just two years. Like, roughly on average, it seems like, it seemed like with every new volume as far back as, like, volume 17 and onward, the, the circulation only increases, like, 20 million copies or so. Like, every volume. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that's, that's, that's incredibly insane. Mm-hmm. But... Obviously, Demon Slayer, as we've been talking about, is not just a hugely successful manga, but also the film has been incredibly successful. And it has officially passed Spirited Away as the number one all-time Japanese film, which means not just in Japan domestically, which it already done, had surpassed it as the number one film. But now, worldwide, it has surpassed Spirited Away's gross. And it's only continuing to climb in its revenue as well and who knows it may right now it's like number four tides grossing film of last year it may break into the top three because i it is past the 400 million dollar mark and it's still in theaters and it still has so many other countries left to show in so yeah it's it's gunning for that spot and already though again it's the highest grossing anime film worldwide Man, at this point, you were going to have to, like, drag Mugen Train out of theaters, like, kicking and screaming. Like, it it doesn't feel like it's ever going to leave theaters, even though eventually it will. I mean, your name lasted in theaters for a year, but Demon Slayer Damn. surpassed the box office records for your name. So, and again, so many other countries it is left to show in. So, a lot of potential for <laughs> to continue to climb. I mean, if it continues to climb the way it has, could it possibly even end up being the number one highest grossing film of 2020? That'd be pretty insane. But it has quite a barrier to get there. It has, it'd have to make $50 more million more in sales to beat out the 800 for number one. I mean, it could happen. It could happen. I mean, it's still in theaters. It's still a lot of countries left to show in. It has not shown in mainland China yet, so... You know, or or the U.S. So, you know, that there's still a lot of market. But obviously, Demon Slayer's success has attracted a lot of attention from not just in Japan, a lot of people interested in it and the creator, but also overseas. So Time Magazine has done something they've never done before. They've selected a mangaka for their annual Time 100 list. And that mangaka being, of course, Gohei Dekutege, the creator of Demon Slayer. And basically a justification, the reason for including it is, you know, they mention the manga as a huge success, but it really is the movie and like the how successful the movie was in Japan that caught their interest. And it's like, okay, this person has created something that's a real trendsetter, a franchise that's really picking up steam. So there's someone to watch as someone that that really kind of is one of the most notable people to kind of watch out for in the past year. And in terms of up and coming, like, kind of people who have, like, made an impact on the world in some way. Which is, it's both a nice combination, but also kind of sad, ironic, because, te- you know, go to, despite the film's success, Gotoge probably did not make actually that much money from it. Because with the way these contracts work, like, they don't get really royalties from the film. They got, like, an initial payment, which is probably pretty low. Honestly, so sadly, I mean, they're probably benefiting from the manga being really, you know, high selling, but the movie success 
they don't get to reap the benefits of that as much. But uh, alas, you know, uh, with the success of the movie, I, that should hopefully give Gotenke more leverage for future installments in the franchise to get more royalties and, and their future works as well to to get more royal to demand more uh, of a royalty up front. I was going to say, I'm I'm sure UFO Table has made just enough money at this point. They could probably spare to give Gotoge just just a, just a little bit more money the next time they probably make a movie, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, speaking of other awards, Gotoge has also won the New Artist Award from the Minister of Education, Culture, Sports, Science, and Technology because of Demon Slayer. So, I mean, people are recognizing it as, like, kind of a cultural milestone for japan and specifically the the comment for this commendation of the award says that you know demon slayer achieved exceptional manga sales and a new record in terms of this movie box office revenue like the story of a gentle hero along with his devoted companions that were coming unreasonable despair burned in the hearts of people during difficult times embodying the motto of friendship after victory a weekly shouldn't jump this work has become a social phenomenon about manga and anime as adept and appropriate presence for the history of the media arts field so we give this Prize with respect and encouragement to Koyaro Gotoge, whose next work is expected more than anyone else's, which is a lot of pressure to put on Gotoge to have like this culturally significant, impactful work to try and follow that up. But uh, I, you know, I'm hoping, I'm just hoping that they get to create like a, another cool, interesting series following from Demon Slayer. But Demon Slayer also has another prize that's up for the 25th annual Tezuka Asamu Cultural Prize. There are nine nominees for the awards that Demon Slayer is also among to vie for, and these nominees are I Want to Hold I Wouldn't Come So Badly I Could Die by Umishina, Told You Brains and Courage by Miki Yamamoto, Demon Slayer Jujutsu Kaisen, Frey Ren, and the Rose Born in Shulaba, the work look of 70 Shoujo Manga Assistant, Pelelu Rakugan no Granica, Promised Neverland, and Land. So this year's judging committee for the award is going to be Asamu Akimoto, creator Kochikami, and then also Kazuki Sakuraba, then Machiko Sadanaka, entertainer Minami Takahashi, Takahashi, and then writer and Tokoku University art and design instructor Yukiko Tomiya, professor and scholar Shohei Chujo, Mata Cricket and Obanaka Benami, community moderator Tari Abe, and the Asahi Shimun executive, uh, executive office and editor Katsu Sonoda, and the Tokyo Office Culture Life Section Head Tomoko Kochi. So yeah, a lot of uh, pretty high profile names are going to select the winner of this award for this year. And will this go to Demon Slayer just because of how hugely popular and unignorably influential it is? Uh, who knows? I mean, there are a lot of other interesting and cool titles up for this award. But uh, it's definitely something to look out for, I think. And it's, I think it is notable to see Freyrind as a series mentioned here because obviously that series is also very critically acclaimed and I'm also excited and interested to see how Reception for it here will be when Wiz publishes in the fall. And then this also mentions a lot of other series that I really hope do get picked up. Like the 70s Shoujo manga system one, like I would really like to read that one. Well, that was a lot of news to cover though. And in fact, we didn't even get to all of it, but we'll save that for next time. However, I think it's about time for us to get into kind of the meat of our discussion, our discussion of the new Shonen Jump series. So let's jump right in to the first batch of a new year. (laughs) 
All right, it is now time to finally get to all the Cyble pubs we have to talk about, and we have quite a lot of series to talk about, not just from Shonen Jump, and uh, I think maybe we should start with uh, some of our non-Jump stuff and uh, talk about a Cyble pub from Futakia, of all places. Mm-hmm. Their first Simul pub that's going to be ongoing, and this comes to us from Shiki, and this is a series that we had talked about a little bit before, some kind of controversy in that when this was first being published, like, the author was very upset at scanlations for it popping up so quickly, and that discouraged them from even wanting to continue it. And so it's great that now they've partnered with Futakia to offer a free official simulpub of the series. Well, not free. The first chapter is free, and subsequent chapters are available through the subscription. The series is released bi-monthly, so a new chapter every two months, and it seems that it's going to come out on the last Thursday of the month it comes out in. So currently, there are two chapters out, and the third chapter will probably actually be out by the time you're listening to it. It comes out on February 25th. I think we about only read the first chapter yeah. for this podcast, because that's the one that is uh, free. And it's a very good first chapter, definitely making me want to continue on to read more. But basically, the premise of this is that it's about a... It's, it's set in a college, and it's about this guy, Haiga, who is kind of new. He's looking to make some friends at a place called the Double Stop Club, which is a club that is basically a music club. And he's given a tour of the campus by the director of the club and encounters Haiga, or uh, actually encounters a Kane, who is a senior who is uh, very pretty. He has like long black hair with frosted tips and he has a he has a white guitar. He's really good. And his band is extremely popular, even though it's only a three-person band. They have, like, a completely different sound that just blows everyone away. So, Haiga is instantly kind of interested in Kane there, like, on their first meeting and seeing him play at the concert. He's invited out by members of the club to just go hang out for drinks on the weekend. And while there, the director makes him play a game called Russian Sushi, where in one sushi has just a huge amount of wasabi, and he draws the short stick there and Oof. has to eat the spicy wasabi. But for eating the spicy wasabi, he wins a prize, which is basically all the money that everyone gave the director to pay for the drinks for the night. But... He is instructed to use the money to go to one of the box spas behind Shinjuku's Nichomi district and have fun there. And basically what a box spa is, is it's basically kind of a love hotel's place where, you know, you basically go there and you can request a prostitute to sleep with, essentially. And so he's instructed by the director to just go there and find a place and then hook up and tell them later about his experience. But before he leaves to do that, a girl who may have a crush on him, she definitely wanted to warm him for some reason, tells him that behind Nichomi is actually the gay red light district. So he pretends to say, oh, I'm not going to go there and I'll just go home. And he gives everyone back their $10 that they gave the director to drinks that he didn't gave to him. But he does actually go there because he's curious about exploring his sexuality. And he doesn't want to go like all the way at first. He just wants to find a place for foreplay. And so he finds the shop Florasian that 
Orbit's penetration specializes in low-ship play, so, you know, he's kind of nervous, so, requesting someone, so he just vaguely asks for someone androgynous, and this recommended person called Ryo is one of their most popular uh, prostitutes, and essentially, like, the first session is 70 minutes, he's, like, very nervous and stressing out about that, and of course, Ryu, though, turns out to be Kane. And they get to talking, and Haika confesses that he thinks he's bisexual because when he was a sophomore, there's a guy he was always going to advise for about his girlfriend he couldn't break up with. And then one day he kissed him, and the relationship continued from there. But when it came to them talking about having sex, he got cold feet and was nervous because he didn't really want to be a bottom. And so he started dissing himself from him. And then Ryo shares, like, why he is working at the box shop that basically... You know, he is gay through and through, but he has had trouble, like, meeting people and forming relationships. Because everyone he's tried going out with is just really just interested in sex rather than having emotional intimacy. He only wants to have physical relationships with people he likes. So he works at the box shop because the folks who come there usually aren't looking to go all the way, but rather they want emotional support. And so they open up in a way that allows him to understand uh, whether they are physically and emotionally compatible, and he can actually connect with them on an emotional level. And so they both kind of just share, like, where they're coming from. And then Ryo offers, basically, to help Haiga, you know, explore sexuality during the time they have left. And that's basically where the chapter ends up. It's like them seemingly about to engage in some sexual activities. And I thought this was a really great uh, first chapter that had a... I like that it's about this guy trying to just figure out his sexuality and, like, what he wants, you know, sexually, as well as romantically and emotionally. And that's true of Kanae as well, as that, like, he is really wants to have, like, a genuine emotional relationship with people before he sleeps with them or has physical relations with them. And so I like that, you know... These are two people who are both, like, kind of looking to kind of explore themselves and, like, just find someone they can really connect with on an emotional level that then gives way into a physical relationship. And I think it's a really cool start. I'm interested in seeing where it goes and how the relationship progresses. Yeah, um, I thought the first chapter of this was interesting. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm reading this as someone who is straight and, you know doesn't normally read a lot of like BL on the side just because like, you know, I just, I just haven't really had the chance to kind of like look up a lot of stuff, but I thought this in particular was like interesting and actually pretty like somewhat emotionally mature. Like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm also someone who, I don't know if I've talked about this, but like growing up, I definitely had like my, my preconceived notions of like, what most BL or Yaoi was and like, and just kind of assumed like it was all really smutty and totally not my thing. And I mean, I don't know, like th this has a, this has a triple, triple chili pepper rating on like on Futakia. So I'm assuming it's, it's very spicy in the next chapter probably. But um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I like, I, I, I kind of like the setup for this relationship here. I think I am interested in, in general, I'm very interested in stories about characters just kind of exploring their sexuality and, like, finding out who they are. So I think in the future, I'd, I'd be interested in, like, reading the rest of this and, like, finding out what happens. Like, I will admit, when I got to the end of the first chapter, I was just kind of like, oh, we stopped before all the good stuff happened. 
um, it's it's a pretty clever way for Futakia to be like, okay, now you gotta now you gotta pay for a subscription to read the rest of what happens or whatever. You want to see the good stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I uh, I actually I actually liked it a bit more than I thought I was going to. So I think the fact that I like I actually want to read the rest of this and like see what happens is like the biggest compliment I can give it. Mm, yeah, I again I think it's really relatable and and emotionally mature in a way that. Yeah, I often don't see in a lot of romance stories in general, honestly. Like this is like the way they describe about them just trying to find out like what they want in a relationship, the way they just talk it out with each other, like that the way they describe just their circumstances just feels very real and relatable to me. And I just like that the, yeah, the the characters like they feel just very believable like this situation doesn't even feel that forced even though obviously like getting this situation in which to get you know Haiga and Ryo to meet in this way is also you know it takes a lot of typical manga or general storytelling contrivances but like yeah I just I'm interested in seeing how this relationship and how these characters emotions are developed because it is very thoughtful and mature as it is written right now mm-hmm. I, I i guess that's my thing too like i you know i i think part of the reason why at an earlier point in my life i wasn't super interested in bl was because i know there are some stories that like from from what i understand really hinge on like for for some people probably really like uncomfortable like relationship dynamics or whatever yeah i think one thing that's great about this i mean it's just like this is all like the sex they're about to have, or at least, you know, sexual activities are about to have, like, they're all consensual. Like, they're all from a place of, like, understanding of, like, hey, these are our boundaries. These are what we respectively are into, and we're going to operate within that. So there's, like, no violation of consent or going over the line, which is often a problem in uh, BL and this other genres of uh, romance story to, or erotic comic, too. But yeah. Yeah, it's just nice to see a story that starts off in this place of like, hey, we both have something that we are looking for romantic and physically or emotionally and physically. And let's see if we can help each other figure that out. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess uh, in terms of any other stray thoughts I had about this first chapter in particular, uh, I think the art's very good. I like the specific like kind of character designs, or I guess the way they are designed in particular. I can't really explain why. Yeah. I think Kane is like the is a really cool character design. Like he's very pretty and I like his frosted tips a lot. His design definitely stands out. Mm-hmm. When they when they went to the concert earlier in the chapter, uh one of my first thoughts was, Oh, is this gonna be like given? <laughs> Or whatever, because there's there's bands and music. Um, but I, I, I like a lot of the art around there. Like I like the specific page where like um, where Kane's band comes out and he and he starts playing. Yeah, the giant strum sound effect is really cool across the page. Yeah, like I mean, you know, obviously sound effects in manga are just as just as much a part of the art as anything else. And I thought, um, I I thought that was a really good way to give the page some real emphasis there on like oh yeah we're we're like we're ready for a show Mm -hmm. um i i thought some of those pages were really impressive 
But yeah, no, I, I would I would give this pretty high marks, actually, and uh, I'd be interested in reading the rest. Yeah, I'm definitely keen to read more. And it's kind of a shame that it's only uh, once every two months. But yeah, I think every chapter is, should be a treat. I'm definitely excited for it. Mm-hmm. Again, for anybody who wants to read this, this is available on Futakia. First chapter of this obviously is free with... Uh, with the rest of them kind of behind a paywall. But I mean, Futakia, we've talked about in particular, like if you're looking for your BL manga fix, like they ha- they have literally hundreds and hundreds of titles uh, for you to choose from. Yeah, they keep adding more. Like the catalog just ex- keeps expanding. So there's a lot of variety of titles to choose from and read. So it's, it's a really great service. If you're a BL fan, like it, there's just so much to choose from and read. Yeah, for sure. And we'll we'll leave a link in the show notes for anybody who's interested in visiting Futakia. And uh, ho- hopefully in the next few months here, we can we can actually dedicate an episode to like covering more titles from Futakia uh, in the future. I would I would definitely like to do that for sure. Yeah. So this is a new series on Manga Plus, and this should get caught up pretty quickly because there's only about nine chapters out right now in Japan. So if they keep uploading two new chapters a week, I think we'll get caught up pretty quickly here at Updates on Mondays. And that series is Don't Bless Sakimi-san by Shigure Tokita. And this is a cute little rom-com. It's very much reminiscent of Komi Can't Communicate, although this is more explicitly a romance story from the start rather than a story about a girl trying to make friends. But basically, the main uh, the female lead, Sakime, she's a very popular girl who's sociable with everyone except the male lead, Takadono, who she acts very cold towards when he comes to talk to her or interacts with her, and he thinks that she hates him. But he eventually just encounters her in a classroom standing over his desk and then he goes to confront her about like what she thinks of him like why does she hate him if she really does hate him and he does manage to coerce her or like get a confession of her like saying no i I don't hate you but then he's like he tries to press further and it's like well why do you act the way you do and then you know it, it eventually comes to a point where he realizes that she's blushing when talking to them and then she like runs away and then he he asks her the next day of like hey what's uh, going on like why do you act this way around me and basically she says that she gets very embarrassed around him because she you know does have a crush on him because uh, when they were first uh, going to the school like on the first day of school like both of them arrived late but she was being like lectured by the teacher and Takadono recognized this and then he like kind of messed up his clothes so that the teacher would be more distracted by him and start chastising him and allow her to slip away. So ever since then, she's had a crush on him. And so after hearing like this story, Takadono suggests they start dating and she agrees. And from there, the story is just about their experiences dating and just kind of the funny circumstances that arise because Sakine is just so kind of embarrassed to be around Takadono because she just is very awkward because she has the strong feelings for him to the point that, you know, they communicate pretty well through text, but like when they try to walk to school together, like she walks like far behind him and then when he turns to look at her, like she hides behind things like a stand or a fence or whatever. It's like he's very like just embarrassed to even be looked at at him. 
And like when he like goes to just tell her, hey, uh, good morning. Like she has to like run away because she just gets such uh, a blush on her face that she just gets so embarrassed by. It's a very cute series uh, about, you know, just these, you know, nice characters getting into a relationship and just dealing with kind of awkward budding love. Yeah, so uh, I, I thought the series was, uh, I, I think it's cute so far. Um, I don't know if I really have like a lot more to say other than that. It's just, it's just really cute. I think the thing that I kind of like about it the most is I like some of the uh, the sequencing with some scenes. Like I, I really like in the first chapter how like when Tadakono accidentally like falls onto her, she like kind of slips out from under him and it like immediately yeah. leaves the classroom. Like th- there's a lot of like really funny little moments like that that I really enjoy. Uh, that I think, like, kind of add to the comedy of the series. Yeah, they're good, like, gags where she tries to slip past him and it's just, like, you know, just very fun and awkward, like, just how she tries to slip away or tries to avoid being noticed by him because she she's supposed to even lock eyes with him. Mm-hmm. I also really like the sequence in one of the later chapters where um, he's trying to, like, walk up to her and she just keeps, like, walking faster and faster away from him. Yeah. Like, she, and she keeps, like, the same pose. Like, she doesn't, like, <laughs> accelerate her running pose. She just fast walks. And even though he starts to run, he still can't catch up to her. And he's like, what is this? An optical illusion? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, speaking of Comey, like, th- that felt like something, like, straight out of Comey. Like, I could, I can imagine a moment like that in that series. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's, it's just really cute. And I'm, I'm just sad that, uh, unfortunately, we basically got right up to the moment where they're about to go on their first date. Yeah. And I, and I kind of want to see how that goes. Definitely. So yeah, this is a very promising new series. I mean, it's good that Manga Plus is adding new series, considering that so many have ended and are ending. They really need to replace kind of what exclusives they're offering on there and add some new titles. And I think this is a good new one to add. Mm-hmm, for sure, for sure. And so, yeah, we'll also leave a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to uh, read this on Manga Plus. And so, yeah, I, I would recommend it if, again, anyone is just kind of looking for something easy to read and something that... Something that's just really cute. You just want something nice to read. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now that brings us to our Shonen Jump series. There were four new series that started. Are we that sure we, we don't want to talk about? No, we are going to talk about these one shots first. As oh, sorry, sorry. These came out before this new batch of serializations. There were basically two new one shots. Uh, there was a new Shokugeki no Sanji. Oh. That was drawn to commemorate One Piece's a thousand chapter, and there was a special Promise Everline pilot chapter that was created to commemorate the release of both the second season of the Promise Everline anime and the live action movie coming out. So, Shokugeki no Sanji two is it's a nice one because it's you know a set on the going Mary, and. It features more of the Straw Hats this time, whereas the first Shokugan and Sanji was like Sanji's son of the Brade. This is now Sanji as a part of the Straw Hat crew, specifically during the East Blue days. Yeah, so like r- like right before they go to the Grand Line. Yeah, and whatever short time they had between Arlong Park and going to Logue Town or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, they encounter a castaway adrift near their ship, and this... 
person, Rube, he's a chef from a nearby island whose daughter is about to get married, so he wanted to find a legendary fish to serve at a wedding, but he got caught up in a squall and hurt himself trying to ride it out. But while he's collected in a lot of fish, you know, the one he wants to prep is a draconic superfilet salmon whose flesh is extremely tender and is thought to bring good fortune to those who eat it. And because his daughter was extremely sickly as a child and he couldn't do much for her, like he wanted to prepare something very special for her and like something that, you know, will bring her good luck is, of course, you know, for someone who was so sickly as a child, you know, very appropriate and a good omen and whatnot. It's a good gesture, but unfortunately he's kind of given up on this because filleting it takes really exact skill and he just can't do it. And he claims, oh, no one in the East Blue can prepare this fish. And of course Sanji takes this as a challenge to do it himself. But the problem with filleting the salmon is that its stomach is sensitive to a knife's blade. So to open it successfully requires like a perfectly straight singular cut because the slightest waver makes the fish explode and ruin the flesh. So Sanji tries various knives, but none work, but he keeps at it, and Rube is, like, lamenting that, you know, no one can do this, and he shares his story about his daughter, and this kind of moves Zoro, who also is, you know, in respect of Sanji's conviction, because both him and Sanji, you know, they don't get along. As Hicks and Swartzman, they are both people who hone their craft through the blade. So San- Zoro kind of uh, passive-aggressively leaves Sanji one of his swords and says, oh, this is a big board sword. You know, not just anyone can use it. I'm just going to leave it here, though. And Sanji, you know, takes the hint and uses it. And it works. It does the trick. He's able to slay the dragon salmon to hit at both the wedding and on the triad ship. And, yeah, and then, of course, you know, even though Zoro helped Sanji out and they kind of had a mutual understanding, you go back right back to being at each other's throats to Nami Chagrin at the end of the chapter. But it's a very cute, uh, fun little story. I like that the story focuses on Sanji's cooking, you know, and, like, cooking something in a way to make someone happy in particular, which was such at a core of Sanji's character being that's kind of been forgotten as the series goes on. So it's nice to revisit that aspect of his character and also, you know, focus on the relationship between Sanji and Zoro a bit. And kind of like they do have like kind of a begrudging respect for one another and what they do, even though they get on each other's nerves. And I like seeing that a lot too. So I really enjoyed this. And yeah, I, it does kind of make me want a full on regular spinoff of more Shokugeki Sanji stories in this vein from Yudo Sigura and Shinseki. But, yeah. I, I feel like we'll probably get more of these every once in a while at some point. I I remember reading somewhere that, like, there there had been talks to, like, possibly animate uh, the first Shokugeki no Sanji chapter. Mm. I, 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 for, I forget where I I know it was, like, in, in an interview somewhere. I, I I'll have to look it up. Uh, don't don't quote me on that in case I'm wrong, but um, so I, I have to imagine there's like some interest in maybe doing more of these down the pipeline. And I mean, if there is, I'd be up for more of them because and, you know, we, we, we might have said this when we talked about uh, the first Shokugeki no Sanji chapter way back when. But I mean, like, I, I do agree that I, I do like these as like, because, uh, you know, obviously we have our thoughts on. Uh, Sanji as he currently is in the actual One Piece manga. Yeah. Man, Sanji is not perverse at all in this chapter. You know, he does act a little lovey-dovey to Nami, but this is like his old 
style of like you know being infatuated with women it's not like his it's not what it became where he became a pervert it's like before he was like chivalrous and he was like very you know smitten with the ladies but he wasn't like a pervert so i like returning to this characterization of sanji yeah i i I miss when he was just kind of into into ladies and he was just he was just kind of a flirt you know Mm -hmm. like i think that's a genuinely like charming character trait about him that unfortunately has been flanderized and now i can't stand them most chapters honestly this was also a surprisingly not very horny uh chapter of this from the you know shinseki so uh i think that was kind of a surprise but also a pleasant surprise considering that it was more of a supposed to be a, like kind of a heartwarming story about this guy preparing you know a special meal for his daughter's special day so I I think that the imagery of like the kind of mermaid paradise, like both the daughter and the Nami, like as these mermaids, was a very sweet, beautiful ritual that also had humor in it because the the father was also like <laughs> in a mermaid in the background. Yeah, I saw that. That was that was pretty good. Um, yeah, I I I also liked that even though this is like S- Sanji is like the main character of this story in particular, that like we we do get to see him play off of Zoro as well because I I also fe- I also feel like that's something we don't really get as much anymore is that sort of rivalry back and forth between the two of them which I I do kind of miss and even then I felt like I I feel like this story was a better um I don't know what you would call it kind of exploration than we normally get in 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 the actual manga um like 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 here like here you can actually tell that like they still kind of care about each other begrudgingly. Whereas I don't feel like you got like a lot of that sense in the original story. Not that it's not there, but still, yeah. I mean, heck, Zoro and Sanji barely have interacted over the past couple of years. I mean, there was four years where they weren't interacting at all. Like, yeah, so I do like that this is a nice looking their rivalry and also showing that, you know, at the root of it is respect. Yeah, and I mean, like, the the fact that Zoro, you know, gave him, I'm assuming, what was, like, you know, Kawina's sword, you know, to use to fillet this fish, like, you know, I think that in and of itself is, like, a huge deal. Yeah, that shows an incredible amount of trust in Sanji, that he would leave something so precious for him to use, knowing that he would be able to use it successfully. And yeah, I also, and I appreciate also that the focus was just on Zoro Sanji and the Nami is kind of like this go-between character who like gets them, but she's like kind of in the periphery. But like Usopp and Luffy are pretty much, you know, they're there in the chapter, but like, you know, it is drawn in a way that their faces are obscured by the balloons. They're definitely in the background so that the characters in the foreground here are definitely Zoro and Sanji and like we focus on their relationship. I kind of like that. Little touch. We're not ready for Shokugeki no Usopp. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think the last thing I'll say here is uh, what I what I love and hate about these chapters in particular is that like, because you know, the, like we we could we could do a whole podcast on this in particular, but like One Piece in particular, even though I I still like the series a lot, I've definitely kind of fallen off of it lately just because like. You know, I, I I feel like the story is moving kind of in service of the plot and not the characters. Like, I, I feel like we just don't, we don't get a lot of these, like, personable interactions with the crew as much anymore because Oda is 
trying to do his best to like get through as much of the story as possible so he can actually you know f- finish the story i guess in a timely manner so he's not writing one piece for the rest of his life you know so like now now, now that, that there is kind of a clock on one piece like it feels like it feels like we have to finish the story and that kind of comes at the cost of like uh, a lot of the character writing i feel like but I don't know. Other people might feel differently, but that's just kind of how I feel. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad that we get stuff like this where we, where it's just like, oh, we kind of just get to spend time with the characters and like we get to see them like interact and like play off of each other and like, in like really meaningful, like interesting ways, uh, which is something again that I don't really feel like we get a lot from from the main series in particular. So that's just kind of where I'm at. Yeah, it's nice to have really a character focused chapter that is not like because one piece nowadays is definitely more story and lore driven it feels and now this is very much about hey this is what makes these characteristics this is like a nice slice of life story that shows off like who they are at their heart and it's nice to get reminders of that for sure but uh yeah um i can't wait for when we eventually will probably get shokugeki no sanji chapter two like i said i'm i'm sure we'll probably get more at some point like this this feels like the kind of thing that they're going to come back to whenever uh one piece is celebrating some kind of anniversary or hits some kind of milestone like this is a this is like a special treat we'll get to kind of celebrate you know i could i could see that happening but yeah um i don't really have any more thoughts on that in particular if we just want to move on to our next thing Yes, we also got that Promised Neverland pilot chapter from Shrine to Mimisu. Now, this is basically a adaptation of what their original pitch for the Promised Neverland is. So it was drawn basically, you know, kind of a, a special thing to coincide with the movie and second season coming out. But it is like a newly drawn chapter, which should be pretty clear basically by the title illustration also featuring emma and then also the promise neverland cameo at the end of the chapter but yeah so it's kind of interesting them to revisit this original concept for the promise neverland you can definitely see the seeds of what it would become from this pitch but basically it takes place in a city torn up by a civil war between rival gangs and it starts by a guy called leo who belongs to one of these gangs his boss is murdered thanks to a traitor so that gets the whole gang in a fervor to go out and you know kill the traitors and whatnot and this is him included but he ends up basically getting to an accident and getting discovered by rita who is an orphan girl who belongs to a church and she's taken care of him and her backstory is that she was left in front of this church as a baby and because she has kind of a fear of abandonment essentially she wants to be useful to others and presumably she's found the foster father who's doting on her called mr mendel but truth the father of the church has sold her to mr mendel because he wants reese's organs to save his terminally ill daughter Margot. basically he wants to he buys her to harvest her organs for her daughter and reed overhears this and is like completely distraught and disillusioned and you know she goes and talks to Leo like what was even the point of uh, being alive essentially and the next day you know she's basically taken to mendel's mansion and leo discovers that the father sold her for money and punches him out and goes off to rescue her 
And he storms the mansion and rescues Rita and consoles her that, you know, there's no meaning in why they were born, but there is a meaning in living, and she gets to decide that for herself. So he takes her back, and Margot, the terminally ill kid, she overhears Leo's speech, and she gets the conviction to write a story about how everyone's lives have meaning. So even if, you know, her life might be short-lived, she's going to make the most of it. And write a story to inspire others. And that's basically the chapter. It's fairly actually easy to sum up. But yeah, I mean, it's basically you can recognize this core theme of like, hey, you know, we will find and create meaning in our lives and we will live and strive for a happy life. You know, that is kind of a theme that is at the core of the promise of Relent as well. So you see some of the early gestation of it here. And obviously the premise of like, you know, these orphan kids basically being raised by seemingly a loving parental figure, but actually being raised to be sold by them for their own gain. Like that's obviously turned into mom and the farm system and promised stuff for land itself. So you can recognize a lot of different elements of what it became, but I definitely think that you know, Promise Neverland went in a much more, a direction that could sustain, I think, that premise for a longer time, because this definitely reads like a one-shot. I don't really know how much more you can go with this, you know, these characters just escaping this church in this war-torn world, like the utter complications that the final version of Promise Neverland added with demons and having this another world and the farm system and like all these extra layers to the society and then exploring those layers i mean it just fleshed it out to such a bigger degree so i thought this was a fine story for what it was but definitely you know it does pale in comparison to the final product of what the story became Mm -hmm. yeah i mean you, you could tell this is definitely like a proof of concept thing like a pilot or whatever because i mean um, re- reading through this, it it made me kind of appreciate how the Promise Neverland like evolved from this concept because I mean I know the Promise Neverland is you know it, it's obviously a very dark story sometimes but like I think I think the more kind of fantasy elements kind of like make it a little more uh, make it a little easier to stomach otherwise I don't know I don't know how I would have felt about. A series of jump where like literal people are just like trafficking and selling human children. <laughs> yeah, child trafficking and organ harvesting. Like Promise Everland's first chapter has more horrific imagery with what happens with Connie and whatnot. And you know, obviously the horror of like kids being eaten is like even more absurd. But this I mean, this is like uncomfortably real. Like, this is a situation, like, you could believe happens right now in this world. So yeah. it's, like, it's it's a premise that is too heavy to, I think, just write in as optimistic a way that the Promised Thriller wrote its story and had its characters find their happy ending. Like, the reality of it is just too harsh for it to support the kind of shonen optimism that Promise Neverland embodied. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I mean, if I were to judge this, like, just on its own without the connection of it being the pilot to the Promised Neverland, I think on its own, it's it's okay. Like, I think it's, it's a pretty, like, mostly straightforward one-shot. Like, 
it's it's okay. Like it, it has a nice message at the very least, and it, it leaves thing it leaves things open ended enough to where like if they were to have actually published this before you know publishing the real Promised Neverland to kind of test the waters, like I could I could see myself being like. Okay, this was okay, but like I wanna, I kind of want to see like I would like to see more of this somehow, maybe, possibly, uh, just because I I think the ending of it leaves things like maybe a little too open ended. I don't know. I don't know. It just feels too cleanly wrapped up. I mean, I, I guess I don't know what's gonna happen to these characters, like where they're gonna go in this world. Like presumably, if this were to be a series, it would be them on the run from both the gang that Leo belonged to and the church and this father who's probably also gonna go after Rita to reclaim her. Which you know what actually I actually would be open to that idea, but maybe not specifically in Shonen Jump. Yeah, I mean actually that'd be basically Michiko and Hanshin, now that I think about it. I guess basically, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like I said, there's there's not... I don't think there's too much to say other than it's... As a proof of concept, obviously, I... You know, for, for, for how we feel about how The Promised Neverland ended up, you know, despite that, like, it's still... I think it still led to an otherwise, like... It, it led to a better series you know like this the, the the series itself is still an improvement on what this was but you know yeah they definitely flesh it out and really figure it out kind of how to explore what they wanted to explore in kind of a a way that supported a long running series and also was just much more intricate in how it delivered its message rather than kind of like the simplistic like statement of hey you know, you can create meaning in living. Like, it actually, like, put in the time in the final version to, like, actually go for it in, in, like, really showing that effort that went into, like, that struggle to survive, live, and find their happy ending. Yeah, like, th- this is this is basically like if we were to, like, go back and uh, read, like, the pilot chapters for, like, One Piece or Naruto, like... You know, again, they're they're interesting proof of concepts, and it's interesting to kind of go backwards and see like kind of where the idea starts and how like things have evolved since then. Yeah, but I think that does it for thoughts on these one shots. So now we're gonna get into the four new series that have started up in Shonen Jump, basically the first batch of new series of the year. And this is a very high-profile batch, I would say, because we have two veteran otters who have successes under their belts, multiple successes under their belts. We have, like, a series that has a very interesting premise that is out of the ordinary for Jump, and we also have a sports manga returning to the magazine after basically six months of there not being any sports manga in the magazine and also a new baseball series of that since it has been a while since they've attempted one of those too and it's also drawn by someone who previously did a baseball manga for shonen sunday too so we have a magazine migration happening there too but let's start off with the first one of these new series which is the Lusa samurai by yusei masui this is a historical fiction series set during the day of the kamakura shogunate and it's basically about the young lord of the Hojo clan of the shogunate, Tokyuku Hojo. And 
you know, as a kid, he was basically just kind of raised to basically grow up to think that he will just be kind of a proxy ruler. Like, he'll just be kind of a figurehead, but the real, like, people behind the scenes are going to be, like, his, you know, advisors. Like, they'll be the one who actually ruling the country. So he doesn't really care that much. So he kind of is pretty flighty with his studies and just pretty carefree. And no one really expected much of him because people just thought that he would be, you know, kind of a figurehead proxy type ruler. But like the retainer, the warrior that was like most loyal to the clan, ends up betraying them. That being Ashikage Takauji. And history remembers Takauji more than Tokuyugi because of all the deeds he's done. And he's remembered as kind of a hero in history, but... In this series, he it definitely refrains him more as like a villain because he slaughtered the entire Jojo clan and basically all of Tokyuki's family. And so basically he's the only survivor of his clan. And so he is taken under the wing of a priest called Yurishige, who is the high priest of Suwa Grand Shrine, who recognizes greatness in Tokiyuki and that he'll grow up to basically reclaim his land of Kamakura. And he basically, you know, protects him and also shows him that he can use his great ability of evasiveness, his self-preservation instinct, to survive and also he can use it to grow up and become strong and be and basically gain a bunch of retainers and followers to help him fight back against Takauji and the emperor and reclaim the Kamakura shogunate. So basically that is the premise is that you know he is working under and alongside Yoshige alongside a bunch of you know uh, friends who also have pledged loyalty to him and they are basically, you know, training for one day they'll take back Kamakura from Takuji. And so I think what's great about this premise that's very Matsui is that it's definitely kind of taking kind of an unusual element of heroism. Like, that's kind of Matsui's thing is that he, he kind of flips what someone would suspect would be kind of like the what is morally the best or what is the most heroic on its head like assassination classroom is a series where i think these kids are being raised by their teacher to kill their teacher and nero is a story about like this demon from hell like solving crimes not to save people necessarily but so he could like eat the mystery and whatnot so it plays with like weird off-kilter morality and this is also true because, you know, Tokiyuki's not a typical hero. He's not someone who, like, fights his foes directly. He runs away from them in battle, like, in when he fights his uncle. Like, he does not really fight back much. Really, what he does is that he evades his opponent's attacks and lures them into a position where they're vulnerable to the point they can be taken out. So it's kind of a unique kind of approach to having a protagonist who won't fight directly but uses his skill of self-preservation his ability to evade danger and to run away from danger to his advantage to defeat his foes and again it's like refrains these activities these behaviors that one would normally associate with a cowardly character as heroic so i like 
how Monster continues to play with these ideas of what makes someone heroic and what is morally good and stuff like that. So I appreciate that, especially, you know, in the sense that he's reframing a character who historically is more remembered than Tokiyuki and more praised and looked back on, you know, with respects and refrains him as kind of like a villain who basically sold out the people who trust him. So, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things going around here. Obviously, Matsui's art is really good at communicating like both weird moments of comedy, but also like very stunning moments of horror, too. And I think there are a lot of good moments that balance the two. And I think it's a very compelling story so far where I'm very keen to see the journey of Tokiyuki and how he will grow up to amass followers and fight back against this guy who is just like the uber warrior, essentially. Yeah, so obviously uh, myself, I'm a huge fan of Matsui, so I was very excited to hear that he was coming back to jump. And uh, yeah, I I mean, I I pretty much agree with a lot of the stuff you said, I think... um, I mean, it's it's funny, right? I was, maybe it's kind of useless to do, but I, I can't help but do so. But like, I was kind of thinking like, uh, and this might be too early since there are only like five chapters out at the time of this recording, but I was kind of thinking like, well, how does this stack up to like his other stuff? Because I think, um, I think originally I had interesting feelings going into like Assassination Classroom when, when that was running, you know, way back when, when that started running, I should say, and how I thought it was playing it safe compared to Nero. And I mean, eventually, like, you know, by the time I finished it, I was like, oh, man, this is, you know, like, I, I love Nero a lot. And it's still like one of my favorite comics. Um, but I think like, I I came to the conclusion that like, emotionally speaking, I was way more attached to the characters than I was comparatively in Nero. And I think emotionally it was very satisfying by the end, even if I did miss his like very weird, gruesome imagery that from Nero in particular, which, boy, if you... If you're a fan of Matsui and you thought, like, Assassination Classroom played it safe in terms of that, boy, this series is very violent, and I was I was not really expecting it at all. Like, you know, when, when, it, when it gets to the point where uh, Takauji is uh, forming his rebellion or whatever and taking out uh, Kamakura, like, th- there's so many dead bodies everywhere. Like, literally, people are, like... Ske- a lot of decapitations. A lot, a lot of heads on... Multiple heads on multiple swords. It's... I don't, I don't know if I want to call it refreshing, but, like, I kind of missed it. And also, like, wow, it's very jarring uh, if you're not really used to that from him. Especially if, like, you've only read Assassination Classroom, where, you know, that series wasn't really, like, that violent, comparatively. But, yeah, no, I... I don't know. I, I kind of like the way you explained it with, like, how Matsui does kind of deal with, like, uh, sort of, like, moral ambiguity and how, like, he flips certain ideas on its head or whatever. Because, like, I kind of felt like at first, like, I was kind of wondering, like, oh, is he kind of playing it safe with this premise a little bit? Because, like, the the idea of, like, kind of tackling the idea of, like, what makes a samurai, you know, and how, like typically with samurai they always focus on like dying a very noble death and whatnot because to them that's what makes normally that's what makes a samurai whereas here it's like oh well our main character our hero you know his thing is that he runs away and that's perceived as cowardly but really like rather than focusing on your beautiful death you should be focusing on how to live beautifully as as we've learned from gintama 
And so uh, when, when it came to that stuff in particular, I was just kind of like, I do like exploring those ideas, but I was kind of like, oh, well, I've seen this like in other manga. So I, I wasn't like super impressed at first, but I think like the more it goes on, the more I I think like, yeah, this is this is a very solid series so far. Like, I, I genuinely don't think Matsui has done like a bad work. I, I think I remember having uh, Sakaki on a while back to talk about, like, his latest one-shot, uh, F-Ken, and I think, like, I think we were mostly kind of mixed on that, but we, but there were still, like, interesting ideas that, like, he was tackling in that one-shot in particular. Yeah, that was, I mean, that also is in his bag of, like, hey, fetishes are usually seen as a gross thing, but in this, in that one-shot, they were used to the advantage as motivation for these characters to excel at basically their kendo yeah yeah but uh yeah i I think as far as this series goes in particular um i'm really enjoying it so far um you could tell that matsui is like really kind of tackling a lot like there's a i think there's a lot going on with this series and i'm really i'm really interested in seeing like how this will all play out and again i i really i really don't i don't know if i have a lot of thoughts besides that like it's just more matsui and i'm glad he's back in jump just I mean, I, I could I could go on about like how amazing the art is in some places. I really like the spread, especially of how of how the narrator of the story is like kind of explaining how the rebellion took place in the first chapter, and like how it'd be easy to assume they're both like separate pages, but you have like Takauji holding up, uh, holding up the sword and whatnot, kind of like making a pose in the middle of the page, and that's how it like kind of connects both those pages. Yeah, that's a good layout. And the gleam, too, on his sword, like, it illuminates the background of the panel, describing his son leading a unit in another area. So, and it also extends on to the panel below, like, kind of glistening on his followers. So, it's a really uh, striking and clever composition. Like, yeah, Matsui's composition is is on point, as always. Um, Oh, and... uh, one specific moment I also really liked is when Tokiyuki is like talking to his brother and um and how they're like kinda like uh they're kinda like playing catch almost with each other. Yeah, and then the ball drops and then we go to the next page and it's a head dropping. I, I just I love that smash cut there. I thought yeah. that was I thought that was uh particularly really striking. And I guess also one thing I wasn't really sure about was like how much actual fighting Tokiyuki was going to do. But I, I do I do like so far how like how, how you said, right, how like he, he kind of uses he uses his skills at kind of running away to like kind of lure his enemies in and then kind of like deliver the final strike like he does with his uh, with his uncle a little later on. Uh, I, I I thought that was like genuinely surprising. I wasn't I wasn't expecting Tokiyuki in particular to do like a lot of fighting, so I was very surprised by that. Yeah, it's really started off very promisingly and has shown a lot of potential. And I think Matsui is street for street. Like at first glance, it definitely seemed like, oh, is this a more traditional, like safer type premise and setting than Matsui's previous works? But again, I think because it focuses on his strengths of what he likes to explore thematically and the kind of ideas of heroism he likes to twist and play with, I think it is very unique in execution and I'm very keen to see where to lead. Yeah, I'm pretty confident that this is going to end up being another, at least it'll be a solid 
uh, work from Matsui. Like, I genuinely think he's incapable of doing anything bad, uh, in my opinion. Um, one, one small note, I also, I really appreciate how uh, Yorishige, with his, like, ability or inability to see the future, I like that he could see the future enough to, like, uh, to prophesize, like, different, like, pop culture things. Yeah, like, he can make anachronistic jokes because of that ability of uh, foresight. Like, to the point, like, he has, like, a Goku wig in one <laughs> panel in the fourth chapter, as a, or in the fifth chapter as a joke, because he's talking about, like, uh, heroism or getting pumped up or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Matsui is no stranger to, like, pop culture references, as we've seen with his other works, so, like, I'm glad that even in a series that takes place in feudal Japan, we still have those. It's a good way to kind of, like, kind of shoehorn those in a little bit. And uh, if there was any moment in particular, especially from the latest chapter that made me think, oh my god, I'm so glad Matsui's back, is that, um, it because the, the fifth chapter in particular starts off with uh, Takauji, and um, we get this really cool shot of, like, of him talking to one of his, like, subordinates, and you, you see him crying, but, like, then you get a close-up on his there eye. There are, like, eyes in his eye. Oh, God, it's so gross. Like, this is... This is the Matsui I missed from from Assassination Class, uh, from uh, Nero, I should say. Yeah, these these are like Nero West disturbing visuals for sure. Yeah, and again, I love Assassination Classroom, but that was like the like the one small thing that I really missed from his works in particular. So I'm I'm glad that a lot of that stuff is in like full swing here. Yeah, there's definitely more horror in this series uh, compared to Classroom. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm also genuinely interested in like what people will think of this series, especially if they haven't read Nero, because obviously Nero is not really like officially available here. Um, and Assassination Classroom up to this point was the only thing officially available. So I'm, I'm really interested in how people are going to feel going from that to this. I don't think it'll be that jarring because Classroom did have its intense moments. It just didn't go into like trippy horror visuals like Nero but like in terms of storytelling I think this is pretty similar to I think what a lot of people should come to expect from Matsui from Classroom. I guess I, I, I just say that because I know when F. Ken was translated I know some people were kind of like scratching their heads like oh what's, what's up with this this is kind of weird or whatever. I think that's just because of the very premise of F. Ken was about like making fetishisms into a heroic attribute i mean sure i'm i'm just saying like i i'm just i just find it interesting how like you know if if you if you don't have any context for for nero at all like you're not really used to his more like uh, i guess his more wicked sensibilities yeah out there ideas yeah Mm mm-hmm um but yeah no this is this is it's, it's really good i can't wait to read more uh, I love Yusei Matsui, and I love his stuff, and I think we should move on to the next thing before I just start kind of gushing. Yeah, speaking of series that explore skewed senses of justice and heroism, we have ITLC by Kazusa Inaoka. This is a sort of uh, detective crime mystery manga of sorts. It's... I get. I don't know if we should get right away into what the premise is because that's technically somewhat of a spoiler in the first chapter. It definitely like leads you to believe the protagonist is a different person and what's going on is not what it seems. 
Because it starts off with a celebrity basically, you know, being interrogated by these detectives because they're investigating a recent murder of a very popular actress. And then strange things are happening around him where it seems like he's being stalked. And eventually it comes to a head where his stalker basically tricks him into letting her in the house because she disguises herself as a detective and basically reveals herself to basically also work for the police department uh, but she is someone who like is very much infatuated and in love with criminals and so she like stalked him to learn everything about him and she also figured out the trick he used to basically murder the actress and she has like proof already and whatnot so basically she kind of overwhelms him with her affections and her obsessiveness to the point where he turns himself in and then the premise goes from there. It's basically about this uh, woman called Risa Ayoi. She, as a, when five years prior to the start of the story, she was involved in a kidnapping case in which she fell in love with her kidnapper. And since then, she has been going after criminals because she is in love with criminals and she wants to find, like, basically her blight in white armor. Like, she <laughs> wants to basically. Because she recognizes that a lot of criminals are carrying like a lot of pain and sadness that motivate them to do what they do. And she wants to be someone who can be accepting and forgiving of them through her love. And that's what motivates her. So she like goes after criminals with that hope of finding a criminal upon which she can like form that kind of healing relationship with. But of course, all the criminals she encounters are like weirded out and by her like basically bold obsessiveness and the fact that she you know is very uh boundary pushing uh she does break like yeah so she has not had any successes but that puts her into conflict with basically one of the detectives we meet at the start of the series Sakon there are two detective brothers Sakon and Ukon and Sakon the younger brother like he doesn't really believe in Risa's methods because he thinks you know basically what she's doing is like stalking and uh, isn't very legal so he doesn't approve of those methods and also the fact that she puts herself in danger the older brother is pretty indifferent to her and basically describes that she's basically a tool by the police like she technically is a part of the police department but she's also really just a criminal that they use to help them bring in criminals and so if she gets in trouble or a life in danger they don't really care like she's basically just kind of a convenient like wild card they use to just help them out but is disposable but Sakon cares about Reese's well-being so he has endeavored to you know even if she's not going to stop what she's doing he's going to you know look out for her and protect her to make sure like she doesn't go into over her head and put her life in danger and yeah where we are now is that we are in the middle of like kind of a new kind of arc it seems involving like these murders at this like hotel in which like the left hands of like a bunch of people there were cut off and 
seemingly the suspect, the hotel manager, was just murdered. So who knows, like, who the real culprit is? Though I suspect that the real mastermind is this novelist they meet in the chapter who Risa seems to recognize, and he thinks she'd make a great protagonist for his novels. But I think he's pretty sus, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's, like, the real mastermind behind these murders and is going to be more of a villain going forward. But that's kind of where we are with this series. And yeah, first thing I want to say is that this is a series uh, translated by David Evelyn and lettered by Sarah Lindsley. And Lindsley's lettering is just immaculate in the series, particularly in the first chapter. Like there is a you know entire element of this plot involves the fact that the murderer he forged his receipts to basically make it read like he bought something different than what he bought. So just the translation work of making that work, like in turning the knife into like a pocketbook or whatever. And then like also the lettering on the receipt being like really well done. And also utter lettering in the entire chapter. Like there's just some amazing facts. Like I think the great moment is of course when she's like, the jacket of the culprit is like on her face and she like sniffs it and it's like, it smells so good. (laughs) Like, the crazy, like, fonts used for, like, the screams and, like, these dramatic moments are, like, excellent. So, uh, I think it has a really fantastic localization, which just blows me away when I read these uh, chapters. Uh, For the story itself, like, I was a little... I, I was intrigued by it but i was also kind of hesitant by having like kind of another police story in which the police break the laws in order to catch culprits like because risa breaks into this guy's house to like data mine his phone to basically figure out like kind of his history of like where he was and then what he bought and whatnot but yeah i mean the fact that it's going on to explain that she is only she's not she sort of works at the police department, but she's not really a part of them. They're kind of just using her. Like, she, it's not like her actions are condoned necessarily so much as they see it as convenient for them. So the fact that they cast the police department in that kind of negative manipulative light kind of makes it better to me than them just trying to say that, oh, this is kind of like a actual just strategy that they devised to help catch criminals so i appreciate that and that you know it is again playing with kind of like this moral question of like can these criminals be redeemed by risa like can she we get screwed at them to help them reform or like is these efforts never going to really pan out and then also like this idea of like you know she's basically putting herself in danger but like hey someone who's also on the force cares about her is also is going to try and help you know protect her so i think i'm liking the dynamic between uh reese and sakon um i think that so far there's just been a lot of interesting art moments and just interesting like fun little moments where you know the criminal or where reese is interacting with criminals like with the case of the guy who is like kidnapping all these girls to dress them up in gothic like costumes like the beginning of the third chapter like he has reese captured but then it eventually you know goes real like oh she's just crying tears of joy from basically you know being captured by this guy and his you know basically kind of basically turns the entire situation on its head. Like, I like the way she turns the tables on these criminals and intimidates them into a corner. 
So I think there's a lot of fun elements about this, and it is a very different kind of premise and series you don't usually see from Jump in terms of this kind of weird sort of murder mystery detective type stories. So yeah, I'm curious to see how this will play out. I I don't know if it'll catch on, but definitely it is very unique, one of the more unique series, I think, in a while. Yeah, um, initially, as I got kind of further on into the first chapter in particular, all I could think was, man, I don't know. Like this, this is such an interesting series, and I think I think it really has some legs. But I'm I'm also very afraid that like this is the kind of thing that I don't know will like will catch on and jump in particular. Um, I guess time will tell. But like, I think the more I read it, the more I'm. Again, I don't really know about its future in Jump, but like, I think personally for me, I'm really liking it specifically because I, I think it's a series that I, I like that the crux of the series seems to be like that we're going to we're we're, we're going to use this character as a way to like uh, I don't know what the word is like like kind of em- empathize with the criminals that we're trying to catch, like maybe trying to maybe trying to like kind of like dig into them a little bit and kind of explore like why they're doing the crimes they're doing instead of like just yeah i will say the failing of the first couple shows is that it hasn't really done that because the motivations of these characters are uh, motivations of culprits are very shallow so far and you know they basically do feel like kind of caricatures not real characters yeah so i, I will say that this is a the idea i think is really good i think I hope the potential is there to actually kind of explore, like, kind of the motivations behind the criminals going forward and, like, kind of seeing their humanity a little more. Because, you know, the guy who murdered the actress and then the the guy who kidnapped the girls, like, those guys, like, they their motivations are just too shallow and simple to the point that we couldn't really recognize just more of a meaning or of humanity in them. And that wasn't even the focus, ultimately, of those chapters. More of it was about emphasizing Risa as a, as a character, and then also, like, her relationship with Satcom. So I'm hoping going forward we do have more emphasis on, like, the interiority of the criminals and what makes them tick, and how, whether Risa can actually, like, reach out to them and, like, offer, like, kind of love in a way that, you know, helps them to reform. Yeah, it's kind of a shame because, like, I, I feel like with the taxi cab driver in particular, like, the, the the fact that he's doing this because as a kid he wasn't allowed to, like, play with dolls or whatever, I feel like there is something you could do there, maybe. Yeah, it but, just needs to be more than that, and you actually have to explore, like, more of the psychology behind how that has motivated him beyond just this idea that, oh... He couldn't play with dolls as a kid, so now he's become messed up as an adult and kidnaps girls, turn them into, like, living dolls. It's just too little to go off on to make him anything more than just, like, a psychopathic character. I do agree. I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying in particular, I, I thought, I thought maybe if we, if we wanted to explore that more, I think, I think there is something to kind of dig into there, but I'm, I'm willing to give the series a pass because it's, it's just starting off. And I'm, I'm assuming that if this gets to go on and gets to tell the story it wants to tell, I'm sure that we will have more time to kind of dig more into the future criminals we face and 
we'll kind of hopefully get to kind of explore their humanity a little bit more. I really like that as kind of like the hook of the series for me in particular. Um, with that being said, I think it's I think it's also interesting that like it seems like Risa also wants to like it's 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 interesting that she'll that she seems willing to kind of like empathize with other criminals, but it seems like her mission is to like is to find the guy who ki- who originally kidnapped her and kill him. So yeah, I, I'm of two minds about what is really going on there. Because either like her goal is to find this guy and kill him because that's what he wants, and she wants to like give him kind of a release, a grace, because that's just an expression of like you know her love for him. Or the person she really wants to kill is the other person who was kidnapped in that case. Because it has been very noticeable that there are two names on the list of victims of that case and the name of the second person you know we haven't seen that clearly yet but i suspect that's going to come to play later in the story so either the person she wants to kill is her kidnapper but the reasons for why she wants to kill him isn't out of malice but out of like a sense again from this place of love like giving him like release or justice or the person she wants to kill is the other person who was kidnapped alongside her for some reason or some grudge related to the what went down those years ago because we don't really know what the fate of her kidnapper was to this point yet yeah i don't know i think um see it's it's so it's so hard to say but like i think when i first read this this seems like the kind of thing that like the whole premise of this series feels very Matsui to me in particular, actually. Mm. Like I could, I could see, I could have seen Matsui taking on something like this. Uh, I was, I was not expecting it from the person behind invade you in particular. Yeah. It's definitely a 180 from like kind of a romantic comedy about like this alien to have like a crime series starring a yandere detective, a yandere criminal detective. But yeah, no, I I think there's a lot of potential here for what this series could do and explore uh, as far as like, you know, criminals and the justice system and like actually trying to emphasize with the people who do these crimes instead of like just punishing them sometimes. Yeah, I'm hoping it goes in that direction. I mean, it could just like continue to fall flat with very shallow motivated criminals, but you know, I'm hoping that it'll go a little deeper into these ideas that it is setting up of that the reason Risa wants to do this is because she recognizes humanity and the people who creates to commit these crimes. Mm-hmm. Like the the series definitely has like a thesis statement it wants to present, and I think it's just a matter of giving it enough time to like you know make its arguments. I guess. Yeah. Hopefully. I hope this has legs. I hope it succeeds. Um, and I I 100% agree that, like, I think this series in particular is in, like, very, very more than capable hands with David Evelyn and uh, and Sarah Lindsley. Uh, we, like, I think we got, like, a real dream team working on the Sevil Pub in particular. Yeah, definitely. Again, the localization of this is really excellent. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'd, I'd recommend this for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, our next series is from another veteran author, and that's Watch by Kentishi Nahara. <laughs> the story of this one is basically about 
an airheaded witch named Nico, who after her training in the Holy Land of Witches returns to basically the human world to live with her old childhood friend Morhito for high school years. And Morhito is an ogre, and he must serve as Nico's familiar and bodyguard to protect her from some uncertain danger that's threatening to befall her within the next year. And as an ogre, you know, he has, like, a lot of strength uh, from his, you know, that he basically has inherited. And as a kid, he was hesitant to use his strength because he, you know, fought back against, like, bullies one time and really hurt them. But, you know, over the course of the first chapter, he does decide and use his strength, you know, in order to save Nico. So, you know, he doesn't have as much of a complex about that anymore when it comes to, like, protecting himself and the people he cares about, essentially. But, it's, yeah, basically it's about the story about these two high schoolers living together and then shenanigans happen because Nico is uh, very bad at magic. Like, she has a lot of spells, but they always go awry with some sort of catch to them. And, uh, yeah, shenanigans just ensue in uh, every chapter so far. Yeah, so, obviously, again, Kenta Shinohara, one of my favorite comics authors. As I've talked about before, I love Sket Dance, and Astro Lost in Space is also a very solid work that I enjoyed as well. And um, I don't know if I feel as strongly about uh his third like his third work essentially compared to like you say Matsui's but I I can say that I I do enjoy it so far I do think it's I personally think it's very funny so far and um I really enjoy that we're getting a simul pub of another thing from Shinahara in particular again just because like I really think with with the level of translation and localization that Viz puts into their stuff I think it emphasizes his comedy a lot more yeah, I mean, Ray is the editor, and they, you know, are a huge fan of Shinohara's works. You know, they were also editor on Astra, so, you know, they know his sensibilities. They love uh, his style of humor, so, yeah, definitely this has worked on with a team that has a lot of love and respect for Shinohara's uh, style of humor in his series, so, you know, they, they put a lot of effort and care into it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. It's very interesting compared to his other works because this is kind of leaning more into like, uh, leaning more into fantasy. Uh, again, I mean, it's more of like a, I guess it's like a, it's like a magical, uh, what is the term? Magical comedy or, I mean, I, it is kind of more of like a high school, uh, rom-com series just with the premise of like this character is a witch and this other character is just essentially really strong i mean it, it leans way more into magic than like obviously either astra or sket dance did well astra was a sci-fi story so that's a completely yeah. different genre. and you know, sket dance yeah that was also like just a slice of life story that you know had like kind of its fantastical elements in terms of like you know, crazy science that turns people into kids or whatnot. So, you know, it plays with kind of uh, goofy shena- law shenanigans and bizarre stuff happening, too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a fantasy because fantasy, I think, just is set in a different world. Like, this is set That's in fair, kind of yeah. like just a normal world. And it's just the characters themselves are magical. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. This is just so far. This is interesting compared to his other works because, like, with Sket Dance and Astra, I think uh, both Basun and uh, Kanata were for for the most part kind of similar, but still, but still different characters in their own way. Whereas with uh, Morihito, Morihito feels more like a. He he, he kind of reminds me more of Switch, except he's not he's not like an otaku or whatever. He seems a lot more cool and collected. He reminds me more of Boston's rival from the student council. What, Subaki? Yeah, because he's very self-serious, but then he does have his, you know, uh, reactions to, like, the shenanigans that are happening around him. That's true. Switch is more of a deadpan uh, character that has his weird moments. Like, I, I feel like uh, Moy, he's just more of a, he's more serious. He just wants to not stand out or cause trouble, but he's just kind of baffled and, you know, has to deal with like weirdness around him and begrudgingly just has to go along with it. Mm-hmm. I can see your point. Um, I think I do agree with the Sabaki comparison more just because like, as we, as we kind of see in like, you know, chapter three, when he's trying to like write stuff down and use his eraser and it breaks off. Like you can tell he's, he, he kind of like, like he has his moments where like, he's clearly like embarrassed or whatever. And so, yeah, I think it, it's just, I'm glad personally that so far this character isn't just like another Basun as much as I love Basun. And I like that character type. I'm glad he's, I'm glad he's going with some, somebody a little different. And uh, I don't know, I just like, there, there's there's not like a lot to say about this so far, because it has been a lot of comedy and kind of like, set up a little bit. Uh, we're, we're just now like getting into high school and like introducing Nico to the real world or whatever, and having her getting used to high school. I did like the third chapter, as far as like the high school shenanigans go. I'm really looking forward to seeing more of the teacher in particular, since she is a big manga nerd. Yeah, the otaku. <laughs> When Nico turns like Moi's hair into standing up, and they're like, "Oh, what is going freaks in world of my classroom? <laughs> oh my gosh! I guess he's really putting his all out there. He's not expecting to live." Or wait a minute, what am I talking about? I like Karapika more <laughs> anyway. Oh man, um, I'm sure we'll get a lot of really good references from her in the future. But uh, yeah, I again, I just. Oh, I, I guess I should also say I really like I kind of like the arc that Moe goes through in the first chapter concerning his strength and how like he's trying to hide it. But like, you know, he learns that like he shouldn't just like ignore it because he's a it's a part of who he is or whatever. I kind of like that sort of central arc for that first chapter in particular. And I thought that I, I thought it led to like a nice payoff with him uh, breaking the wall to try to save uh, to try to save Nico from her uh, from her flattening spell. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so far, I, I think this uh, kind of like with uh, Matsui and the Elusive Samurai, I think this is, I think for Shinohara, this is just going to be, I think this is going to end up being like a solid series that it just kind of showcases and emphasizes his his strength as, as a manga artist and author. Yeah, I gel with Shinohara's sense of humor, so I've enjoyed every chapter and got good chuckles out of them. I do feel like the premise of this is just less unique than Sket Dance or Astra. Like, this feels just, you know, I've, this is just, you know, kind of a, a very typical, like, 
magical rom-com type story where you have like this, you know, weird character who has special abilities that causes, you know, weird things to happen in an otherwise ordinary setting. Like there's a lot of series like that that I've read and they're pretty common. So it's not like the premise is the least exciting out of the, the four for me, but I still enjoy it. I don't really have strong feelings about why I do think his character arc in the first chapter was pretty good, but like subsequent chapters, like he himself hasn't been the most interesting so much in of himself so much as what happens to him and him having to play off of other characters. I think Nico really makes it. I think she is very fun. And she reminds me a lot of Ares and like her airheaded ditzy this way, but there is like an endearing kind of sweetness and sincerity to her and like her confidence that in her magic that ultimately always goes awry and just ends up causing a big mess and uh i enjoy that a lot i liked in the second chapter her imagining herself giving these mockumentary style style like interview confessionals like in her mind about like her thoughts on boy and whether romance still happen between them like uh, another interesting thing is that she's like very clearly into Moy, she's a very horny uh, protagonist, which is <laughs> pretty fun too. So, yeah, I, I like her, and I, I like again Shinhara's sense of humor. So, why this is probably the series I'm like the least excited about, and just in terms of like you know the premise, like it is one I'm still enjoying. Yeah, I I can see that. Um... Man, the, the the Ares comparison is apt. Like she she's basically Ares if she looked more like Himiko. Yeah, yeah. I t- I totally get what you're saying about this being like the least exciting premise out of everything we've covered. But like, I guess we were talking about Yusei Matsui earlier, and like, and I was mentioning like I was wondering like whether he was playing it safe or not. And I think I think the more I think about it, that applies more to this series so far. Um, again, I I think Shinohara's like brand of humor still keeps it interesting for me. So in that way, it doesn't feel too derivative for me in particular, but I totally understand, like, yeah, this is this is him just kind of going back to that uh, sort of slice of life stuff he did with, with Sket Dance. But I, I would also argue that, like, he's, I think that's his bread and butter, personally. Though I also think we're clearly setting up for, like, a bigger story down the line as, like, as he did with Sket Dance and Astro Lost in Space, especially. Like, I'm sure there's going to come a point, if this goes on for long enough, I'm sure there's going to be a point where, like, shit's going to hit the fan, and, like, the scope of the story, I'm sure, will probably expand at some point. Yeah, I could see this turning into more of a battle comedy manga at some point. What with, you know, again, Moi has super strength and whatnot, so... And uh, there's some danger that's supposed to befall uh, Nico. So, yeah, I could see, like, there being some, like, willingness threat they have to fight against. And, yeah, I mean, again, Shinohara is good at, like, you know, having, like, these series that, you know, have their, like, very goofy moments of comedy, but then veer into, like, some very potent drama that it's uh, extremely compelling. So I am on the lookout for that. So it's it's definitely a wait-and-see thing, though. Like, when it'll get to that kind of stuff that takes it just a notch deeper with these characters than where it currently is. No, I totally agree. I feel like Morihito's father and Nico's mother in particular are probably off, like, 
having their own stuff to deal with, and I'm sure, like, that's going to play a big part in the story eventually. Like, I, I feel like there's more going on that we're, that we're just not privy to right now that will probably, like, surprise us later, possibly. But, uh, you know, it's it's too early to tell. Like, for, for now, I... I'm I'm really enjoying the comedy and I'm enjoying the kind of relationship and the back and forth between Morihito and uh and Nico in particular. I, I think I think they're cute. I want to see more of them. Mm-hmm. Also, shout out to uh Shueisha for giving a PV for the manga for Witch Watch, uh s- starring a grown-up sket dance trio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that gave me at least like ten more years of life watching that. Um, <laughs> I thought that was pretty great. They even got they even got the original actors back for that too. That was so nice. Mm-hmm. Man, that was great. Uh, but anyway, yes, I'm I'm pretty positive about Witch Watch. Personally speaking, though, uh, again, I'm I guess for right now, I'm 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 enjoying the comedy, but I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop eventually when we get to it. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to our final new series from this round and the long-awaited first new sports series in the magazine in a long time and the first sports series in the magazine period in six months since Haikyuu ended. And that's Nine Dragons in this Ball Parade, story by Mikiyasa Kamada and art by Ashibi Fukui. And this is about a kid called Azu who, you know, he's pretty diminutive and not the most physically adept, but he really loves baseball and he really wants to be a catcher and be a professional baseball player. So he studies hard and he trains hard so that he can make it into the tryouts for Hagokuo Academy, which is renowned for its baseball team. And so he goes to the tryouts and while there he encounters a kid called Ryudo, who seemingly doesn't know a lot about baseball, or at least what goes into baseball tryouts, because he's baffled when he is told that a, a baseball tryout, like one of the things they have to do as a test is for the fundamental skills to includes running. But both of them pass their tryouts, and then it comes to basically just the demonstration of their actual baseball abilities. And so they end up on the same team together, but Azu is pitted against as a cat. Azu's catcher, like the other catcher on the other team, is like a really big hulking guy. And since there's only like one catcher that the team is going to recruit, like he has to show his skills up against that guy. But unfortunately, the team he's playing with, they don't really pay attention or take his signal seriously, so he can't really show off his skill as a catcher, and he gets blamed for their poor performance. That is until Ryo comes up to the pitch, and he does follow Azu's instructions, and that eventually gets him able to convince the team to take his suggestion seriously and come up with a strategy to defeat the other team. And so they do indeed do that, and they win, and like Azu thinks, okay, great, now I've I've really proven myself, and I am going to make this team. But he doesn't make the team, because even though he's shown off his skill as a player, what they really want at Hakuo are people who are extremely physically powerful. Like, they want people who are really really adept physically because and they don't really need people who just who are skilled at strategy because they have 
analysts. They have like a 50 man team of analysts. So they just want, you know, soldiers to carry out their orders, essentially. So he's rejected while Ryudo is accepted. But Ryudo turns down uh, joining the team because he wants to form a team with Azu. Because he enjoyed playing with Azu. And he doesn't really gel with the philosophy of Hakuo. But, of course, it's kind of like a difficult thing for them at that stage to then both find another high school, to both be enrolled into, and another you know, baseball team for them to both be on. So it doesn't seem like possible, but they are approached by a girl called Karen, who is the head of the Kokuruzan High School's baseball team sport committee. And she was, you know, kind of spying at the Hokio tryouts and she was very impressed by their skills. So she offers them like an instant enrollment at the school on a full baseball scholarship. And that's basically where we're at uh, in terms of these first couple chapters. And I think that Azu's story is very compelling about, like, you know, he isn't the most physically gifted, but through a bunch of hard work and a bunch of studying and effort, like, he is able to, you know, really show off that he's that he can be a great catcher. But heartbreakingly, you know, even though he proves himself, it's just not what the academy is looking for. And so he's rejected. And then it's just a heartbreaking moment where he's thinking, well, I guess that's it then. I have to give up my dream. I, you know, I guess I don't have to wake up early anymore. I don't have to try as hard. It's just heartbreaking. Just that sense of like giving up on something you're so passionate about. And just, it's very compelling that, you know, even though he wasn't able to get through to this team that he wanted to so hard be recruited by. Like, he did find, like, a fellow compatriot, a fellow spirit in Ryudo who, like, recognizes, hey, like, not only are you a great player, you're fun to play with. And, you know, baseball is something that I want to have fun playing, and I think I can with you. So that's a very compelling, sweet relationship between them. And I, I'm definitely looking forward to them as partners, as a battery on this new team that they're going to form. And I'm, I'm curious to see where it's going to go. I think this is a really, like, it has a really strong emotional hook to it. And, you know, baseball manga have been a hard sell for a long time in Jump. But I think that this is such a strong start in terms of where it's starting out from emotionally with these characters that I'm, I'm hoping for the best from it. Um, I have to be honest, I wasn't. Mm. I wasn't feeling this at first, I think up until the end of the first chapter. I like the idea of these two characters who clearly like work well together, um, you know, going to basically starting their own team and possibly leading up to like, you know, le leading up to them like facing off against Hakuo in the future. Yeah. I like that idea for the premise. Um, and I think... Um, it's hard for me to say because like there's only two chapters of this out by the uh, when we're recording this, but um, and and maybe it's just because I'm 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 sorry, Maxie, if you're listening, in particular, but I'm just I'm just not really a baseball guy, and so like I feel like baseball manga in particular are kind of a hard sell for me. So I feel I feel like I need to read more of this and kind of see where it goes. Because other than that kind of part of the story, I guess, that sort of twist, I guess, we got to the end, I think it's just okay. Like, I don't think it's, like, bad or anything. Like, cl clearly, I think I think this has the ingredients to be, like, a solid sports manga. I just think, for me in particular, this is a sport that is 
is really hard for me to like get excited about because like I b- baseball for me is super boring. So I don't care about the sport in a sports series. Like the draw of is a, is the characters. Like whatever no, sport sure. it yeah. is, is like you just need to sell like what it means to the characters, how much they care about it, and just sell like the activities through the action. I think the art in this is extremely well. When Yudo is giving his like big pitch in this first chapter like the sense the speed of it and like the spiral of the path of it is just super like striking and dynamic and i think that there's really strong art that sells the action oh yeah for sure so i think like it really succeeds on that level of making baseball look like a sport with impact and making it exciting. But I think the real heart of it is, of course, Azu's character arc in this first chapter, like, and his place of, like, again, being someone who normally would be passed over because he's not the most, like, physically capable. But he really tried hard and trained hard and put all this effort into this day this tryout of going to this academy and like proving himself and he does prove himself but he's still rejected because it's just not what they were looking for and that's kind of a very real lesson is that you can try your best like you can do everything right and you can still not succeed because just sometimes it's not it's not even a personal thing it's just not in the cards it's just not what like whoever you were trying to uh, impress was looking for and you know that's just a very real lesson it's just the feeling afterward is very real of like him trying to convince himself like hey you know maybe this is a good thing maybe you know it's good that i won't have to try as hard anymore and i can just take it easy but then he recognizes in himself you know i I can't lie to myself i love this i wanted this and my dream is over it's just so it's such a heartbreaking but such a very real realization and then, yeah, again, that to me is like what is super compelling and at the heart of this story is just this journey of this character ultimately is going to be to just like really make his own path. Like the doors to him from the place he wanted to go to is closed, but he's going to like find his own way there through another way and through comrades who believe in him. And I, I'm really there for that. I think, again, the emotions of this chapter were just so strong and, like, so compelling that I, I really am was immediately, like, endeared to it and invested in, like, where these characters are going. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I, I don't know. I think I just, I think I just need, like, more of it to kind of see, like, how I'll feel later on. Like, even if this doesn't, like, totally click for me right now, maybe it'll click with me, like, the more I read of it. Um, one, one thing I really do appreciate is the color page for the second chapter in particular, because that's clearly a reference to the beginning of the first chapter when Azu mentions, like, how when he was a kid, he wanted to go down uh, this particular slide, but he kept, like, letting all the other kids uh, behind him go in front of him. And obviously now we now we have the beginning of chapter two where he's going he not only is he going down that slide, he's going down that slide with Ryudo. Yeah. But he's also going first. Like he's in front. Like now he's finally putting himself first. Yeah, so I, I really appreciated like the thematic connection between those chapters and how that was shown off in like in like a color page or whatever. So I I I really enjoyed that detail in particular. I thought that was very poignant. Yeah. 
I also appreciate the misdirect in the first chapter color spread in which it shows Azu and Ryudo in Hakuo uniforms. Like, it's a very misdirect that it makes you think, oh, they will join the team, but then the end of chapter, oh no, that's not the direction it's going. So I thought that was clever too. No, yeah. Um, I, I do wonder who, like, the other two characters are in that title page, though. Yeah, I will get introduced to that, I'm sure, as, the, as more of it comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, like I said, I don't think this is bad. I do recognize that there's obviously a lot of craft behind this, and I do appreciate I do appreciate that. Like I said, I think I just need more to go off of before I make, like, a full judgment. Though I, I will say that, um, I don't know if we want to get into this now, but, like, I feel like... Because obviously, like, not all of these new series are going to last, unfortunately. That's just kind of how Shonen Jump works in particular. I feel like out of everything, this, I can't help but feel like this has the highest chance of probably being canceled early. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just depends on what resonates with the readers and what they want. I mean, baseball series and Jump have not had a good track record in... Like a long time, there hasn't. It's been a long time since the last successful baseball series. So we'll see if it can break the curse. Like I think the last big baseball series in Jump is Mister Full Swing, and back in two thousand one. So you know it's been twenty years for another hit baseball hit. But again, like there's a void in the magazine right now of there not being any other sports series on here. So I mean, that there's here's hoping that uh, it just is able to catch on and find its audience. I mean, I, I say that, but like, I also don't really want, I, I like, I genuinely don't want any of these to end early. Yeah. Again, I, I know it won't happen, but I, I, I hope that all of these get enough time to really show themselves off and to like prove themselves to the readers. Cause I mean, like, let's also be real. Like, I feel like out of anything, like, I feel like ball parade will probably get axed early just because like, I mean, I, I tell C could probably get axed early too. We never know. But I feel like, I feel like considering, you know, we have Matsui and Shinohara back, like even if those do end up getting canceled, I feel like they're going to like jump is going to let those stick around longer because they are from veteran authors. Yeah. I, they do seem to give more slack to series from established creators than, series from relative unknowns or at least people who haven't had hits under their belts yet as we've seen with examples like samurai 8 and whatnot yeah so i'm i don't want to say like oh there's obviously like a weak link or whatever but it is hard for me not to think like that this one will be first up on the chopping block but again i also want to believe that they'll give this enough time to grow and hopefully maybe find an audience because i I would like to see if Jump can actually produce like an actually good popular baseball manga after 20 years or so. And even if they don't, like, we'll at least be able to say like, hey, the Shonen Jump app has this has this cool little baseball series or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's really hard to like make predictions for this round because like I like, you know, e- even if I'm not like. 100% sold on Ball Parade just yet. I still think, like, all these series are really solid. I would agree. Like, this this is probably the most solid serialization round we've had in a long time. Yeah, I think so as well. Like, I enjoy all these series, and I am rooting for them to find their audience and uh, succeed. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, I I think that's go- I think that's gonna be about it for those. Um, obviously these these are these are all on the Shonen Jump app and on Manga Plus, and you 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 know you know where to find those at this point. But yeah, definitely go read these and uh, support these as best you can. And yeah, I think um, is there anything else that uh, any other stray thoughts on uh, any of the cyberpubs we talked about or? Uh- well, I guess. Do we want to rank uh, the at least the Shonen Jump ones? So like, what we like most to? Oh man! Well, uh, so I guess I guess if I had to say like which ones did I like the most, that's tough. I I'm gonna say I like Matsui's series the most. I think I think the Elusive Samurai is the one that I'm like the most invested in right now out of the four. Followed by Witch Watch, I Tell C, and then a Nine Dragons Ball Parade. Hmm. Yeah, I think Elusive Samurai is my number one, and then after that's Ball Parade, and then ITLC, and then Witch Watch. But again, I enjoyed all of them. No, yeah, I, I enjoyed all of them too, and I, I know we have our differing opinions on, like, you know, which one we think might be the weakest, but, like, overall... I don't want to keep repeating ourselves. All, all, all these are good, and I think all of them are, like, worth taking a look at if, if you haven't read any of them already. Mm-hmm. I very much enjoyed the discussion of those series, and I'm looking forward to seeing how talks on them evolved as they continue on through the year. It's going to be interesting to reflect, I think, on this year jump in our end of the year reflection of it, for sure, I think, just with these four series alone. And who knows what other new series are going to pop up. But that about does it for our discussion for this episode. So I think we're going to head into our community shoutouts. And Colton, I think you actually have some shoutouts you wanted to mention this time. I sure do, actually. Uh, I just want to talk about uh, some podcasts that I've been uh, listening to recently. One of which really is just kind of a plug for uh, for a new podcast. Uh, once again, uh, started up by our friends V-Lord, Sakaki, and Marion. Uh just like a lot of our friends, they've caught the podcasting bug and now they can't stop. And so I think it's safe to say that we both really want to shout out their new podcast, Saturday Night Shoggy. Um, great title, by the way, in which uh, basically it's it is their new podcast dedicated to all things Shigaku Khan, uh, including, you know, Weekly Shonen Sunday, of course. The first episode of that at the time of this recording just came out, and we'll obviously link to it in the show notes. Um, I listened to it at work the other night, and uh, I thought it was a good first episode. It seems like what they'll be doing for uh, for now is basically covering uh, whatever Chicago Con related news is out there, talking about sales and uh, new releases of of whatever Chicago Con manga uh, will be coming out over here in North America in particular. And just in general, they also got to talk about, like, the relationship with Shonen Sunday and, like, how it kind of led to them, like, doing the podcast and everything. And uh, I thought I just thought it was a good time. And in general, I really appreciate that there is a podcast dedicated to a manga publisher that, like, not a lot of people really talk about as much as the others. And, yeah, I just, I just thought it was a good first episode. And if, if you're if you're looking for more Shogakukan coverage, especially Weekly Shonen Sunday I would really, really recommend this new podcast. Uh, I think they're going to be trying for a monthly release schedule on that. And yeah, I mean, like if, if, you, if you're a fan of like Shonen Sunday or or if you follow like Sakaki's weekly Shogakukan edition on Twitter or the blog, or if you're a fan of all, any of that stuff, you really want to listen to this podcast. I would highly recommend it. Yeah. 
Shagak kind of is a publisher that all three are incredibly passionate. This podcast has been something they'd been joking about doing and have been thinking about doing for so long. And now it's finally seeing fruition. And I already know they have a lot of great plans for how they want to approach the podcast in terms of what series they want to cover, what they want to spot, like what they want to do to kind of promote some kind of like under discussed and sometimes underappreciated manga compared to at least the likes of Shonen Jump and Shoeisha titles. And they are incredibly knowledgeable and passionate about those series, and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing future installments. Mm -hmm. And I guess as far as the other podcasts I wanted to kind of talk about really quickly, I've been weirdly kind of craving a lot of My Hero Academia discussion lately. I know there's been a lot of discourse about like where the like what the manga's been covering with like a lot of the Todoroki family stuff and everything, but I mean, d- despite that, generally I've been I've been really into the series a lot lately, especially over, over like the past year or so. Like I think the manga's been extremely good, and so I've I've just been kind of interested in like what other people have to say about it, especially right now. Um, in general, I think we've plugged them before, but. We, we both have been on the uh, the My Hero Academia podcast hosted by Kendra. Uh, I think it's safe to say that we both recommend it. If you want, like, mm-hmm. if, if, you, if you want something that, like, covers the, uh, like, the newest chapters of My Hero Academia weekly and you're more into, like, the weekly discussion of stuff and that kind of thing, they've been having some really, really cool guests on lately. What with uh, Roger's Space and uh, Arun. Uh, Roger's base in particular, being a huge influencer on social media and uh, and YouTube, had a lot uh, a lot of interesting to say about uh, My Hero Academia and like his time with the fandom, as well as like other people from just like you know the comic book industry in in general that they've had on recently. I think that was a really good discussion. Um, we, I, I I don't typically see a lot of discussion of MHA like from the lens of someone who is like already like really big into like western comics and superhero comics and stuff so that was really fun um in general maj pod is is good i would say uh i feel bad i i I really need to like actually find the time to be on an episode soon um hopefully uh within the next few weeks uh also i really want to shout out some other maja podcasts that i've really been into that i think are trying to do something a little different from like the uh from the weekly discussions that Kendra in particular has um first off I want to shout out the big three cast hosted by Nate and their friends that podcast I'm really into specifically because it is it is a podcast kind of dedicated to the anime specifically uh but I think it's like the kind of podcast I'm super into in particular where it's like very detail oriented and uh really kind of digs into the weeds of like what makes my hair academia work and what doesn't Again, if, if you're if you're very like detail oriented like I am, like it's a really great show. Uh really enjoy it. Uh as well as the Hero Notes pod, which I just started listening to recently. Uh that is a podcast specifically it goes through the manga as well, but like from the beginning. So it's uh kind of kind of a manga recap-ish kind of show where they go over like two to three chapters per episode. And uh I'm I'm really in I'm really enjoying what that podcast has to offer so far. Uh, in general, I think all these podcasts are very good. Uh, like I said, we'll leave links to them in the show notes. I mean, like, I, I should have figured, but, like, I didn't realize, like, how many My Hero Academia podcasts were on the internet. I mean, it, it's obviously a very hugely popular series. Uh, I mean, th- th- there's bound to be multiple podcasts for them. But, you know, if you ask me, like, which ones I think so far are worth uh, listening to, I think 
I think these three so far are like the ones worth listening to the most. Obviously, I haven't listened to every one of them, but uh, I'm sure I'll get to them eventually. But for now, these are the three that like I would recommend the most. Absolutely. I also am a big fan of MHA Pod, and I definitely need to get around to listening to the Roger episodes and the Arun and Morgan Perry episode. The Arun and Morgan Perry one is especially interesting to me because they both work at Boom Studios, huge comics publisher, but also their insights on the state of the comics market and how manga performs in the comics market is very interesting to me. I'm following them on Twitter, so I'm definitely interested to hear their conversation on the show, and I'm also interested in the other two shows, and so checking them out, and, you know, we have some Horikoshi slash MJ related plans later in the year. It'd be great to have on those folks on. It would be, yeah. To show, so we'll see if uh, something can develop there. Now, I have uh, some shout-outs of my own. First, I'd like to recommend the latest Multiversity Mod Club episode where they reviewed the latest Batch of Shonen Jump series if you want like some more second opinions on all four of the new series. And also, further validation that Nine Dragons Ball Parade was one of the best ones, which not only they agree with, but also we can agree get agreed with. So I feel pretty validated in that there. But yeah, I mean, they had a lot of fun thoughts and they also all enjoyed all the new series, which I think is generally the consensus that I'm hearing is that like everyone thinks like all the new series are, are interesting if nothing else. So yeah, I mean, they're all very curious. I'm definitely curious to see uh, how they're going to all fare over the long game. And actually, with some recent developments and some recent chapters that have uh, turned some twists and some wrenches into how we expected things to go with some of them. Now, speaking on uh, some editorials or talks on Shonen Jump series, there was a really great article on Anime Herald on Spy Family and how it basically uses the Cold War-inspired setting of the manga to comment on something that also was propagated around the time, this idea of the nuclear family and kind of the myth of what the nuclear family is in terms of, like, you have this breadwinner husband, you have the same one housewife mom, and then you have, like, this child that is supposed to, like, be kind of a good cog in the wheel to grow up and then enter society as a functioning adult and whatever. And it really brings, the Dr. Hyana really brings up a great point about, like, by having this artifice of, uh, in Spy Family of, like, you know, all these characters in this makeshift family, they're all hiding secrets, they're all, like, kind of pretending to be in this role, they're not going to appear, it really exposes kind of the fallacy of this idea of the nuclear family, how it's, like, just all farce and not, like, a real thing that exists in the sense of, like, this idealized version that was promoted and propagated as as propaganda in the Cold War period and still the effects of that idea are resonant today. And I really love how she describes it. Like Spy Hitler takes this idea of the nuclear family and plays it as she can be played for laughs. So yeah, I think this was a great dissection of this idea of the nuclear family as Spy Family kind of pokes fun of it in its story and its setup and premise. I also really liked an article on Chainsaw Man and the author Lucas going into how the Denji power relationship was just a really nice platonic relationship and like about kind of Denji kind of realizing the the seed power initially he sees power as kind of like maybe an object for his sexual lust but then just over course of time they form a real friendship that he recognizes is not romantic or sexual in nature he's just 
from pure compassion and how rare and refreshing it is to have like such well, the probably central uh, emotional relationship of the manga being a friendship between a male and female character without any romantic overtones. So I thought that was a great article about the series and about the strength of that relationship and how Chainsaw Man depicts platonic relationships in general in contrast to romantic ones and also just Denji's growing self-awareness of what he wants in terms of his relationships with other people, both like in terms of friendships and in terms of romantic relationships. Now we also talked about the success of MHJ and Demon Slayer a lot and how big they are. And I thought there was a really interesting article from Manga Therapy where they really dig into why they think Demon Slayer is so big in Japan while MHJ is so big in America. And really getting to heart that the series, both series have kind of like different kind of perspectives or different focuses. Like MHJ is about kind of this personal like self centered or self-focused kind of approach to its characters where like they are all focused on like this goal that they want to achieve for themselves whereas Demon Slayer is more of a collectivist kind of story it's more about like the protagonist wanting to do something for other people or to protect other people as the main focus it's not really about you know Tanjiro he wants to be something it's more that he wants to do something for others and that also extends to his relationships with the villains and with both series it also kind of comments on like how they see the villains in that series and like the amount of empathy uh, they extend to them and I think it was a really interesting cultural analysis of like how both series can kind of come from like this same you know, cultural climate. I mean, they're both contemporary Japanese series, but they have, they reflect like different values and different belief systems. And I thought that was a really great analysis of why, because they have these different interests in their narratives for their characters and what their journeys mean. And also in particular, like how they will, re- how their characters relate to characters around them and particularly how they operate within kind of family structures and that influence on them. Like, how one story, MHA, might resonate more with, you know, Western audiences while we have Demon Slayer being huge, huge in Japan. So I think that was a really great analysis of, like, uh, why two of the biggest series right now, like, what makes them think, what, what, why one might be bigger in one market compared to the other. Now, a big conversation that was also going around recently was a conversation on gatekeeping because there was like this, in particular, like there was this guy like saying, who made this dumb, like attention grabbing tweet about like, oh, if you like, like all these, he lists off all these like normie or like very mainstream anime and say, if you like, like these anime, you're not a real anime fan and everyone dumped on him for very good reason because that's a stupid take. And that inspired this episode of the Tanami Faithful podcast on gatekeeping where, you know, the regular crew, including CJ, Paul, Sketch, Laser Kid, V Lord, and Sila, they all came together just to discuss, like, why do people gatekeep? What is at the root of the, like, why are they trying to keep people out when, you know, you would think that you would want anime to be an inviting place. You would like this community to be a place where you can invite people in. And CJ really goes to bat for Sketch and Paul and like Tanami Faithful as like a place that really did invite people in from all parts of fandom, no matter like what their experience with Tanami or anime was. They were a very exciting community, which is why 
they are grown and are such a respected community, which I think is very, very true. But in general, I think everyone brought up good points about, like, you know, where they came from when they first got getting to anime and what they've noticed about behaviors of people who want to gatekeep anime. And this also addresses into some other toxic elements related and intertwined with this idea of gatekeeping, including racism and sexism. So I thought this was a very, very great conversation on the topic. Next, I have a few articles related to Isaki Uta and their new comic, Reaper, that I want to mention. So Marion wrote a really great analysis of two of Isaki Uta's works, Minikan, Isitral, and Mermaid in a Bottle, where Marion really went into what they noticed about Uta's interest as a storyteller and like how impactful the messages and characters explored were to them, but also like what they really loved and admired about their art and how they used their art to tell the story and complement the emotions of the characters. So I thought that was a really great analysis of their work. And then that extends to their review of Leaper, where they also really dig into like what makes that comic so interesting and especially in the context of Uta's oeuvre that they had previously read before. And I thought there were a lot of great uh, reviews of Libra recently that I want to promote, you know, to promote the comic itself. I also reviewed Libra recently and it's a great Dojinshi comic and I would definitely encourage people to check that out and read it, but also read uh, some other opinions on it because I thought... It was interesting. I read so many different takes on it that all had very different things to, to point out. And two in particular, besides Marion, I want to mention are Mercedes's review of Leaper, which I thought really got into kind of the heart of the struggle of the protagonist, Mio. And like the story is really about a girl who desperately wants and wishes the world was placed for her because the world is kind of set up to not accommodate her. And I thought that was a really great point. And also G had a very thorough review of the themes of the story and what she appreciated about the art too on her YouTube channel. So definitely check that out. And then finally, speaking of kind of YouTube reviews, obviously there's been a lot of big Pokemon hubbub recently thanks to the new Gen 4 remakes being announced and of course Pokemon Legends Arceus and all that. And of course it being 25th anniversary of Pokemon in general. And that got me in the mood to check out some more Pokemon video essays and stuff like that. And I finally got around to one that I missed earlier in the year, which was Tama Shihiroka's review of Fire Red and Leaf Green. And I previously had recommended and promoted like their Ruby and Sapphire retrospective, as well as the retrospective of Diamond Pearl and Gold Silver. And the Fire Red Leaf Green is done in the very same style, like look at these games in the context of the franchise, history of the franchise. And personally, while I enjoy playing those games myself like those were among the first pokemon games that i i started playing like i i played the gen 1 games but when i got into pokemon gen 3 was about to come out so i quickly moved on from gen 1 to gen 3 but she points out a good point that for a lot of players who've been with pokemon for the beginning and at that point in time in the franchise like the fire and Leaf game were very frustrating games because the purpose of those games was in large part to collect the Pokemon that were not in Ruby and Sapphire because of the they reduced the Pokedex to exclude Pokemon, uh, sum up a lot of the previous Pokemon. And then, you know, these games were meant to like help you finally complete your Pokedex. But even then, like you couldn't 
really do that without first, you know, getting both copies of the game because they were version exclusives, but also you couldn't even trade between Fire Red Leaf Green and Ruby Sapphire until you completed the game, but that requires so much extra work and which was really tedious if you didn't really want to go through that effort, but also just having to play through Kanto again, it didn't, the games didn't necessarily add that much new that would be appealing after already a lot of players would have been playing through Kanto for two generations worth of games right now. So yeah, I thought that was an interesting look, look at the games that I, I didn't really think about because, you know, growing up, I just enjoy playing those games. But yeah, in the context of when it came out in the franchise and what, it, and like how longtime players at the time responded to it, I thought that was a very good retrospective and criticism of those games from that angle. And yeah, I think those are the community shoutouts I want to mention this time. And I think that's a lot of cool stuff for you to check out and dig into. But I think that really about does it for this episode of the show. And uh, we'll head into our wrap up here. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you guys for so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It ended up a little longer than we wanted to. But hey, it happens sometimes, especially with this show. And so, yeah, I guess, uh, Lum, where can the people find you? You can find me at Lumrumyasha on Twitter. It's Lumrumyasha, variety pieces like Amateur Revelation and Analyst. Wherever there's a Lumrumyasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews on Onishcom.com. We got a lot of books coming in. We got a lot of reviews going out, so look forward to more on there. Like I mentioned before, I also wrote a review of Reapers, so you can check that out as well. And, of course, you can also check out my other podcasts I do, one where I read movies and uh, Lump Squad, which is the Yurisi Yatsura podcast I do with AC Andrew Yoshimura, and we are having a real good time reviewing new volumes of the manga, and we're definitely excited to head into discussions of the movies pretty soon, so I uh, look forward to more Lump Squad, and you can find that on pretty much every podcast platform you can think of, and also on Twitter, at Lum underscore squad. And if you like the art I do for this show, the thumbnails I draw, and the art I make in journal, you can follow me on Instagram at SidArtWorks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host a few other podcasts on the side, which you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. I have a page dedicated with links to basically whatever podcast I'm doing at the moment. Again, that's at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. As for the podcast in general, uh, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks over at all-comic.com, where we post every episode first, unless you are a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. We're at the $2 tier. If you sign up for that, you'll get a chance to basically listen to early editions of the podcast, uh, depending on if we have them edited early before they're meant to go up on our main feed. If you sign up for it now, you'll be able to listen to our upcoming episode on a silent voice that is available on our Patreon at the $2 tier, you know, for, for patrons, you know, before it's supposed to come out. So if you want to listen to it, and you don't want to have to wait for it to be uploaded within the next few weeks or so. Again, that's at the $2 tier. Or if you want some new content, uh, you could sign up for our $5 tier, where you'll get access to all of our bonus podcasts with one new bonus podcast release at the end of every month. Right now, we are continuing through our Manga Mavericks Book Club read-through uh, miniseries of Saint Seiya, the original Saint Seiya manga from Masabi Kurumada. Uh, that I am reading for the first time, along with my friend Doctor from the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast. 
it, that, that series has been a lot of fun to read through. And uh, you can listen to the latest episode of that again at our Patreon at the $5 tier. Again, that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. It's the best way for you to help us support the show and everything we do here. And we really do appreciate any support or patronage you're able to give us. Uh, but as for everything else, you can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, where we post different excerpts of the podcast and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. What did you think of all the news we covered this episode? Uh, what do you think of all the new series coming out in Jump right now? Uh, which one do you think will last and which one do you think will get axed early? I don't know. Any, any manga that you're reading that you want to tell us about, you know, email us anything about manga or the podcast and we'll read it on the show. Again, email us at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you're listening to this. We're available on a bunch of different platforms. But specifically for Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate a rating and a review. It really helps the visibility of our show and helps us get to more listeners just in general. And uh, in, also in general, we just appreciate any feedback that you guys have for us. Uh, we really take that seriously. So uh, let us know how we're doing. Um, but that's really going to be about it for this episode. Once again, thank you guys for so much for listening to this episode of the Manga Mavericks Podcast. This has been episode 152, and we will see you guys next time for episode 153. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.